Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am James Laskowski. That was a fun little... Uh, what, 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 uh, what was that? Uh, uh, that, was a, that was a fun little <laughs> rhythm you had there. I'm Patrick Rapol. Um, with us... You, you are. From Punctuation Films, uh, returning guest, uh, you might know him from the uh, Vim Vendors episode, Sean Pierce. Sean, welcome back. Hello. You love Germans. Yeah, yeah. I guys, was going to ask you that is is is, is like new uh, German new cinema like your thing or um, is it I just mean, those two? You know, if you guys do a bonus episode of like the Tin Drum or something, you guys can have me on. But uh, I don't know. I just I guess I really love the vendors, and then I I was really into Fassbinder back in high school. Uh-huh. That was like thing, something I was all about, and then just kind of I don't know. I was like, hey, when are you guys? Have me back, and then you did. So I'm not only into new German cinema. Yeah, right, right. No, but I didn't know if that was like your thing. The way like we have a freaking guest, <laughs> Gabe Powers, and he's super into Italian. No, I, cinema. I am very ignorant for the most part on new German cinema. Mm-hmm. Who? Okay, who else was part of the new German? Oh, uh, you have um, like uh, Herzog. Herzog. Yeah. Her- Herzog is considered part of it, um, and then like. Um, Volker, Volker Schlondendorf, Schlondorf, who did the Tin Drum, uh-huh. and uh, but yeah, Vim Vendors and Fassbinder are the main go-to's. Of yeah, that movie. and then of course Herzog, but he's kind of, kind of part of it. But you know, yeah, Herzog's films don't feel like these movies. Yeah, because I mean, mostly documentary, and then but if you see, there's a very big um, collaborative thing. Like Vim Vendors did a documentary called Tokyo Ga, and mm-hmm. in that, Vim hmm. Vendors just pops up. For, I mean, Werner Herzog pops up for no reason whatsoever. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I saw like the first thirty minutes of that. That was that was one of the movies I I like I put on and I was like, no, not not this time. <laughs> I had to turn it off. <laughs> that that it also had me with uh, what is the first feature film that uh, that uh, Fassbinder made? Love is colder than death. Yeah, that one. Well, I got I know, thirty minutes into I, it. If I remember correctly, you you don't like Godard, right? And that is his <laughs> my, his most Godardian. I actually rewatched that. For this and was left a little uh, cold. I, I felt like I mean, yeah. We'll talk about Foss, more about Fassbinder. We, we sure uh, will. I was going to say the, the episode, same thing like, about uh, the American Soldier, which um, woo, very good dard. Yeah. Well, and then um, wow. Uh, the and then the the first film that I forgot the title of already. Love is colder than death. Yeah, but love is yeah. colder than the death. Probably that, the most seen. That title. one was dedicated to like. For I think French New Wave filmmakers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that one is like that's on. I ended up getting a trial of Hulu Plus to watch a bunch of these movies. Oh yeah, a lot of oh yeah, a ton of Fassbinder's on uh, Hulu Plus via, via the Criterion Collection, and yeah, that one I was just mm-hmm. like, I don't have the proper context for this. I will this not to, to get too much into it, but the second half is a lot better than the first half. Oh, is it in terms of something mm-hmm. you might 
it like the camera starts moving like crazy. There's, oh, yeah, there's yeah. a great scene in a, in a grocery store. Oh, really? <laughs> is it a, the same set as the first 30 minutes? No, that... the first 30 minutes feels like a different movie. So if you make it past that, you might like it a little more. Okay, but... I should check I that out. I love scenes in grocery stores. I, I feel sure. like I feel like Fossbinder was a thing. It, it, like when I was I was sort of watching it, I was like, I could see someone just this being their thing. The way like some people are just into horror movies or something like that. Like I could see uh-huh. someone who's just into. Fossbinder. I mean, there's enough quantity of films. Yeah, there's there. so much quantity, <laughs> and, and also just like it is so. It feels so singular and different, and oh, it yeah. feels like. There, it's probably drawing on a lot of reference points that, like, you could be a Fossbinder scholar. Oh, totally. The way yes. that one is a scholar of, like, Hitchcock or something like that. Yeah, you can and make a whole class just you know, on, on Fassbinder. Unfortunately, like, that kind of director does not always lend itself well to the approach that we do on this, no, on this podcast. No, unless yeah. we do a sequel episode, which might happen. I would yeah. hope it would, because I'm yeah. interested in discovering more, and I'm also interested in hearing more about... Uh, I mean, I mean, no. Sean is you know a huge fa- fast binder fan, and I think the original title of his film was "Meat Eats the Soul," wasn't it? <laughs> no, I wish. Mm. Okay, so what what uh, what's been the progress of uh, your film? Oh, that's right. Uh, last time you were here, you talked about uh, your Kickstarter, or was it an Indiegogo? It was a Kickstarter for your Kickstarter. Jim for kindly donated film. to it. Yes, he did. He did, and I had no money, <laughs> but I also yeah, thanks a lot, Jim. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a Happy bitch. Happy to help. <laughs> you, look bad. you know what? That was for both of us. That was, a, that was like the Director's Club donation. Um, but uh, so, yeah, you were kickstarting uh, a feature film uh, based on a short film that you at punctu- you guys at Punctuation Films made called Meathead Goes Hogwild that is basically about a man going insane over his, his, his cravings for meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and just acting like an animal in the streets. Yeah, the, the feature's <laughs> a little more fleshed out, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that was fleshed the initial out. kernel. So Fle- that it got funded. <laughs> it got yeah, it was successfully funded. Uh, we hit our goal and then some, uh, which was which was nice. Yeah, and uh, we so then we had to make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> yeah, I don't think we actually thought we were gonna have to make it until. Like it was funded, and then it was like, "Wow, we we gotta like step it up. Like this is bad." <laughs> so we, uh, you know, we made it in June and July. It was about, about between two months uh, on and off shooting, and uh, then kind of edited it in sense. And we've basically six thousand dollars is not a lot to make a movie, right? Uh, <laughs> it is feature length. Or- yeah, feature length, mm-hmm. especially uh, you know, even though it's easier than ever, still it's kind of like. Um, so it's there's been a lot of posts. Uh, me and my friend um, who also co-directed it, Zach, edit- have been editing it since August, and um, wow. Kevin, who's the star and the other director of it, he's been doing the sound mix and. You know, we've you know, it's like we have a friend doing the score and all this stuff. So it's interesting to see it all come together. But uh, it's it's just about finished. It's uh, we're having our, our first screening in a couple weeks. First public screening. We've we've tested it like mad with people and kind of had them watch it and then. Oh go, really? Yeah. Like people not involved with the production. We I mean we we tried to have a mix because we we wanted because it's a very weird movie. Yeah. So it's kind of like um like having someone watch it and being like does this make any sense or like like what doesn't work that's or, interesting yeah you always think of like test audiences the opposite like we have to protect our investment 
And oh, so we have to opposite. round off all the edges that might... I, the number one thing I have learned from making Meat Hagos Hog Wild is that before I made it, I was a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> because you just you just assume things are so much easier or, like, you know, the artist and all this creativity is, like, being smothered by everything. But it's, like, you watch it with a group of, like, not even a lot of people, five people. And, like, they're not into it. And it's, like, you know, we shot it, like, long takes all of them like wide shots i'm like i i wanted it all to be wide i wanted it to be long single take scenes and then i i see people watch it i go what the fuck was i thinking (laughs) this is is boring as shit like let's get cut into close-ups can we do a music montage like let's let's make this let's speed ramp like you know it's like (laughs) like you just when people don't respond to it it's like I'll sacrifice every, like you know what I mean like what, whatever like lofty artistic vision you had for this film is like yeah well, I can only imagine working. what people start out with when they make like Fassbender type movies yeah. or something like that like I wonder if it changes a lot or if they're like they just don't care or you know what I mean like well, Foss, like the thing about Fassbender is like he worked so fast like he made so many movies oh, in I, such a short amount of time like yeah you kind made, of like, like four oh, movies like, I watched, in a year uh, I watched like uh uh, fear the fear the holy whore, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. that is that movie is like, I have a, it's like it's so audacious in the way it, like I think it's actually I mean we'll talk about it later, but like I think it's like one of the most honest films about filmmaking and like for like big productions. Oh yeah, I, like I, ever yes. just in that it's about killing time. Oh, I, I honestly pretty much I, he makes that kind of film about killing time, but then he makes five films or four or five films a year. Yeah, and like from our conception to like now, it's been about a year. Right. So like, and that's like the kernel of an idea to now. And, and like, this is a small like, and and I'm happy with that. Timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine like millions of dollars, like all this stuff, like all that pressure, and then he like turns out like four or five. Like I, I he, I don't know. You 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 almost wonder like maybe like that is what enabled him to be so audacious is that he didn't like yeah. he didn't have time to overthink. He didn't worry anything. about because he knew there yeah. was like three more he yeah. was writing or you know in some that and sort a lot of, of cocaine yeah I, we should have done more cocaine meathead yeah. was made without a single snort of cocaine is and, that in the credits at the end? <laughs> like uh, no like, cork like no the, cocaine was like used. at the end of shadows yeah. like what you have just seen is improvised or like like what you have just seen was made without the benefit of cocaine <laughs> yeah. oh. test, test screenings are very humbling i um also i co-edited a documentary about uh an arts organization affiliated with the Neo Futurarium called the Barrel of Monkeys, and <laughs> like McCollin and I, we collaborated on it, and we thought certain things worked. And then you show them to a, an audience, and it doesn't work so well. We just sort, sort of look at each other in frowny face, and we're like, "Aw." <laughs> so then you sort of have to rethink things or re-edit it. And I, I remember that process sort of being a little bit painful at times, but. It helped the movie, I think. Oh, definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm a big proponent of screening it. And to be honest, the worst thing was when someone just, like, liked it. Like, they were like, oh, that was good. And it's like, that's it? That's you know, that. like, like, what did you hate? Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> please tell me what that's you hated. That's not constructive. That was good is not constructive. Yeah, like, I'd have, so, like, you know, I'd have my girlfriend watch it, and she was like, I loved it. And I'd be like, you're just saying that. <laughs> what did you hate? We talked about, we did a bonus episode recently, I'm still editing, about, like, the songwriting process. And, like, the idea of, at a certain point, like, Jim 
when he had a band and he was in high school or whatever, he would be sending out like demos to labels and everything. Mm-hmm. But now, like, because you're like, oh well, you know, that's what you do when you're a band. But like now, like the only goal is like I want people who aren't my friends to tell me what they think about it. Because, oh yeah, like that's otherwise, I just have now. no clue. My my biggest goal in life would be like. If Steven Soderbergh watched something that I made and just hated it, yeah, and, and just told, told me what like, I was doing wrong, like just walked out, like it gave you like a ninety second dressing down. Yeah, like if he like sent an email, like I hated it, cut out this, cut out this, I, <laughs> yeah. I would be like, bow down, like please tell me you hated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that and it's interesting putting out the record. It's officially out now. Um, Garden on a trampoline dot and everything. <laughs> um, it's there you go. Yay! It's 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 not bad. I'm pretty happy with it, and um, it's interesting now. And we talk about this also on the bonus episode. Just like, what is the next step? Well, um, sending it out and seeing what other people think. And um, <laughs> just one blog was a little bit too glowing a phrase for me to buy. Like I thought, yeah, that that blog well, not not a critical thing. Like that guy just sort of seemed to like. Or I mean, I mean, I guess that is the thing when but, you have a blog, you don't have to write about music you don't like. Yeah, so. that's true. I mean, it's it's very nice to hear. And they were all just like fifty words about. This I love this. I love this, and I love camp. this. Yeah. He's the but, five I mean, star Yelp guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty much, and you know, it's hard to take that you know seriously. But at the same time, I'm like, well, it's positive praise. So I'm assuming he listened to it because he mentioned like, oh, the first song is an instrumental. So at least he <laughs> right. listened to the first song. It's not some bot. <laughs> Collecting releases on Bandcamp and like yeah. cranking up blog posts and then sending it to the artist so that they, it's not yeah it's not some weird thing where it's like uh, on your WordPress blog you get you that you haven't visited in five years you go back and there's like twenty comments you're like really twenty comments and then it's just all blo- bots that are just like uh, I like this post a lot you should visit my blog oh yeah like uh, <laughs> in terms of I can speak a little to film festivals. Um, as, as far as short films, and uh, I got into a few places, and basically, I right when I first started submitting and getting in, uh, you get a bunch of emails, I did not know this, from smaller festivals around the world that are like, we, we've heard about your film and we love it, we'll waive the fee to $10, and you know, like, because we, we, we think you're such a strong candidate, and I would hmm. send in, you know, at the ignorant early college, and... I never heard anything. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just, you know, it's. I'm sure it's just a it's batch. A very, like, very, very small. Film we're gonna cut the festival. fee in half for you because you're special. Like, does that film festival exist, or <laughs> is that just <laughs> like the side project of someone who's designing all these bots? Yeah. Just like, uh, well, what's another avenue I could do? Oh, well, I could, I could scan these like student filmmakers. Desperate, like people are like they like my movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> speaking of um, hamburgers, um, speaking of hamburgers, go ahead. I was on the Movie Club podcast reviewing Popeye that features Wimpy. Oh, uh, yes. You know, he'll he'll, he'll uh, gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Who who plays him in that movie? Paul Dooley. Paul Dooley? Yeah. I don't think I know Paul Dooley. You should. What? Breaking Away. The dad What's from Paul Breaking Dooley in? The dad from Breaking Away. Nope. Strange Brew. No. Have you seen Strange Brew? I haven't seen Strange Brew. I forgot I'm who sorry. he plays. In Str- I think he plays Max von Sydow's sort of sidekick. In I forgot Brew. Max von Sydow was in Strange Brew. <laughs> yeah. I, the only thing I know about Strange Brew is that Getty Lee did a song with the McKenzie brothers. Oh, yeah. That's so song. good. Take off. Do the yeah, take off. Exactly. Take off. 
You gotta see Strange Brew, Patrick. I guess I do. I guess I am. I saw Armed and Dangerous, and I hated it. And I'm, you hated <laughs> Armed and Dangerous. I'm really not into Armed oh, and Dangerous. The end of the movie when he gets on the motorcycle and drives on the the right side of the highway. <laughs> I don't remember it. I'm a huge fan of that scene. <laughs> I thought there, it was uh, there is a thing man, about but... uh, 80s comedies that. Oh, there's something about yeah those 80s comedies from the SNL and SCTV sort of alumni that like I don't know there's a vibe about them that I just I don't trust anyone's opinion on them especially better, like it, people it in their 30s or 40s Zerk. who saw them like growing up oh I mean it's not a great Arnold it's not a great movie yeah yeah no no <laughs> No, it's not. But anyway, uh, review. It's like the people by. that will tell you, tell you, like planes, trains, and automobiles, one of the greatest comedies ever. And it's, it's, oh yeah, like that's that sort of thing. Well, there's just, a big difference: Steve Martin versus Eugene Levy. I yeah. Think be, yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't even like planes, trains, and automobiles. I don't think that's a very funny movie. Like, I'm just it has I don't funny know, it's just moments. A thing with that. Um, so yeah, I have not seen Strange Brew because I love Bob and Doug McKenzie in like two and a half minute chunks on SCTV. I think that's I a perfect context and, for and I don't want to – what's that? I, said, I thought you were going to say two and a half men. Yeah, I love Bob and Doug Kenzie on two and a half men. I love the when they – I love when Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas guest starred on episode of Big Bang Theory as Bob and Doug McKenzie. Great episode. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That would be crazy. It's just like Bob <laughs> – The Bob crossover everyone's been asking yeah, for. It. Bob and Doug McKenzie have been on every CBS sitcom. And then and they're like they're on NCIS. Oh yeah, they were on Yes Dear. For, I, think, <laughs> oh. I think a full season of Yes Dear. That's true because they were like the two crazy uncles who like they gotta live in our basement. They got nowhere <laughs> else to go. Bob and Doug were on were in Brother Bear, that animated movie. That is the actual one weird crossover. That, yeah. that that last like I don't know if it's the last Disney two D animated movie before Princess and the Frog or just like one of them, but that movie Brother Bear. Had two moose that were Bob and Doug McKenzie, I guess. For the so adults. for the yeah. so for the for the movie club podcast. <laughs> oh right, right. We were talking we, about a thing. That I don't was know what happened. Um, we did Popeye, mm-hmm. which I kind of like. Not a lot, but I liked it. And of course, Punch Drunk Love. I that director I love so much, you know. So yeah, that was fun. I had a good time. It actually yeah. is under two hours. So, <laughs> so say, how many people were on that? Because only cause I was on the email chain, and eventually I had I didn't watch the movies in time, so I couldn't be on it. But uh, only like, four, only four, only four, because they invited like nine people to be on the podcast. Yeah, I thought for sure that one's going to be super crowded because of Punch Drunk Love, but yeah, it's all right. I just sang its praises, and it's like, what do you say welcome. about that movie? I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I said everything. Yeah. I think I covered it all with that Punch Drunk Love was the last movie he made before There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. or did he do one in between? No, it's The Gap. Yeah. It was like, what, six years? Yeah, it was like a long mm-hmm. gap, and then There Will Be Blood came out, and everyone's freaking out. So, like, you could, I don't know, you could talk about that. I'm sure you guys just talked about Harry Nielsen, because that's, what What other, do, are those movies actually have connective thread, other than the fact that that one Harry Nielsen song? I guess that's it. Yeah, no, I think, I mean... No, yeah, that's it. No, that really Sometimes is the it. programming for that show is very odd. Um, it is. <laughs> I was on the episode next... where it was Paris, Texas, and Southland Tales. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> like, so what was the connection? I don't know. Amnesia. And I, but like, and, was... oh, amnesia. That works. Oh, okay. But, but, Ha-ha. Uh, 
I that was, that was I a, thought of that's that. also a really unfortunate series of movies because uh, as we talked about in the Vin Vendors episode, I'm not the biggest fan of Paris, Texas. So I had to be the guy who likes Southland Tales more than Paris, Texas, which is like you're an idiot. Like who are you? But uh, I like I, I say the that every defender episode. of Southland Tales, um, which is not a good movie, but is I think it captures a certain tone very well. So um, does Paris, Texas. <laughs> yes, of course it does, but. You that know. movie doesn't need its defenders, Jim. Southland Tale, there is... The cans cut never showed up on Criterion. <laughs> the amount of people that say Southland Tales is better than Paris, Texas. That's all I hear. Yeah. Oh, I keep rewatching the box and hoping that I'm going to love it. Yeah. I watch t- it like once a year. have you seen the box? I think four at this point. I'm like, <laughs> am I ever going to love this movie? I don't know. I don't think... Because it's Twilight Zone ties thing. with the box, Jim. What is it about the box that keeps drawing you back to it? Because it's Richard Matheson and Twilight Zone and it's Richard Kelly. I, lo- I, I don't know. I like Richard Kelly's weirdness. But oh, so you end, are a Richard like, Kelly fan. No, yeah, totally. I don't know when he's ever going to make a movie again, but I am. <laughs> Overall, I mean, I don't I love Donnie Darko. I kind of just now as a Twitter personality. Yeah. He tweets a lot. Like, he's friends with Ryan Johnson. So, like, he tweets oh, a lot that's with cool. Ryan Johnson. The, the box was the movie that my, made my dad stop trusting my opinion in movies. Like, I, <laughs> I took him to go see it, and he was like, no. Like, he just, like... That's what I everybody's response I, was. I lost him. Like, mm-hmm. and I was like, I didn't like it either. There was, a, there was a period of time where my mom was like, I never get to go to the movies, Patrick. You're living at home. Uh, your father doesn't like going to the movies. We'll go out to the movies once a week. And I go, cool, awesome. Yeah. So once a week, you ch- like every other week, you choose a movie. And then the following <laughs> week, I choose the movie or whatever. And then so that lasted three weeks because the first week she chose all, um, Wild Hogs. And okay. then the Ooh! second week, I chose There Will Be Blood. And then the third week, she chose Blades of Glory, the, uh, the uh, Will Ferrell uh, ice skating movie. And then it was just like, okay, incompatible. <laughs> not going to happen. I, I like Blades of Glory. It's not, it's not terrible. Uh, it's no Ali Fury's The Soul, but it's, sure. it's, it's good. <laughs> it's not, but it still deserves the Criterion treatment. Like, you can agree. Yeah. The scene in which there's a chase scene through the streets and every, the, everyone's wearing the ice skates. It's great. They're just hurting their feet. And uh, Amy Poehler and Will Arnett are good in it. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, Kanye West likes it. Um, because Kanye West can't stop referencing and sampling like really, really weird broad slapstick comedies in his music. Wait, he, there's a Blades of Glory reference in a Kanye uh, West song? N-Words in Paris starts with, I'm going to skate to one song and one song only, which is a quote <laughs> from Blades of Glory. And he got and like he has dropped like Bobby Boucher reference it. Like he's go. dropped references to the Waterboy. He drops references to Blades of uh, Glory. He drops references to Talladega Nights like... He, yeah, Kanye West has a weird thing where, like, the only cultural references that he'll drop in his music are, like, super broad Wasn't comedies. he in Anchorman 2? Yeah, he was in Anchorman 2. Yeah. He, he just loves Will Ferrell. Yeah, yeah. Apparently. So, movieclubpodcast.blogspot.com. Uh, mm-hmm. That's about all from me. Cool. Uh, are you ready to get into uh, what we watched this week? Yeah. All right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Child's play, Mama crashed my blue heaven. Boogie nights, I'll leave ringing out the dead. Can't buy me love, I want to hold your hand. What 
What have you watched recently? Um, let's see. Uh, have either of you guys seen The Homesman, the Tommy Lee Jones movie that he wrote, directed, and started? Oh, is this the one where he's going out and the getting West. the... the? It's like the Western? Yeah, with uh, three crazy women. Yeah. It is Ooh. incredible. I, I kind of want to see <laughs> that. <Is> it? <laughs> it's so good. I, I, I saw it, and I was like, why is no one talking about this movie? Uh, he made was it the Three Burials the of Marquetas Estrada? Yeah. I like that movie and a lot. Me yeah. too. Yeah. And it's not as good as that movie. And he also did um, Sunset uh, Sunset, Sunset Limited, Limited, which I love. It's oh great. yeah, it's incredible. So it's, it's a filmed like, play, but it's a fucking great play. And mm-hmm. he's they're really good in it. Yeah. So it's like he made this, and it's it's first of all this movie's gorgeous. So it's like a lot of these movies are kind of stuffy looking, or you know. It's like these crazy shots, very interestingly shot um, movie. And then on top of that, I don't like Hilary Swank at all. I no. can't stand her. She's just kind of one of those people that you like look at and you hear her talk and you're just like, oh, I, I don't like her. Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I'm being mean to Hilary Swank. Mm-hmm. It's just like she's off-putting. And, yeah. and her character in the movie is someone that men, she wants to be married. But men just... For some reason, find her off-putting. <laughs> oh, so you're in. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Finally, a movie that allows me to approach Hillary Swank on my own terms. So it's kind of like when an actor is just perfectly cast yeah, and they're yeah. incredible. Yeah, like uh, Kevin this, Klein in In-N-Out. Yeah, as <laughs> a gay man coming yeah. out. Um, this is her movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like Hillary Swank. I'm not like into every Western but this movie, I don't know. I, it got like panned for like switching tone a lot. Huh. But like he he basically plays a senile old crazy man who's like very funny, and then Hilary Swank is like a sourpuss, and they just like are on the open road together. And I love this movie. Yeah, is it so? It's just like is it the fun of watching them interact? Because the, I saw the trailer for it, and I I was kind of into it. I was I like the idea. I like the this idea for a western, and I and I turned to my partner, and I was like, huh. And Regina was like, oh. <laughs> like shake her head. I was like, all right, well, I guess not. Yeah, no, it's it's basically three three men have wives who are just too crazy for them to deal with, mm-hmm. and they can't be bothered to do anything with, like they, to take them to get help. So then they recruit the only woman because only women understand women. Or right, you know, right, right. And then to go on this trip, and then Tommy Lee Jones comes along, and I don't know. It might. It's not a perfect movie. There's definitely some lulls and stuff. Mm-hmm. But as far as like a movie, no one is talking about. The Homesman is great. Like honestly, it's, is it in theaters right uh, now? No, it came out like three months ago. Did you see it, Jim? No, I want to. Very bad. I I heard from other podcasts that the cinematography is unbelievable. So I'm gonna rent this on Blu-ray from the library. I'm hoping that they get it. So i'm ju- I'm, oh, yeah. I'm interested because i'm a huge fan of th- three burials um and it's it's totally one of those movies where like uh it's a road movie where people just pop up 
for like one small memorable scene, and because nice. it's Tommy Lee Jones, you know, like he'll go up to a brothel and or something, and you'll be like, oh, who's this going to be? And it's like, you know. James Spader. Oh, okay. It's, just like, it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like James Spader chewing scenery for like, it's like a whole divergent thing for like 15 minutes. If, if, if James Spader could find a way to only have a career, because like, yeah, my favorite James Spader roles in the past 10 years have just, is just like Lincoln. James Spader and Lincoln. Yeah. Like, it's just like, <laughs> Pretty if much. you could just like keep on that track, I'd love it. Me too. Yeah. So if you, if you like James Spader for only 10 minutes, this <laughs> yeah, is the yeah, movie yeah. for you. That should be on the poster. <laughs> is it, is it like, like the vibe I got from the trailer was like it's some like it is, uh, like are these women actually crazy or is oh it they're a, actually crazy? Okay, I thought maybe oh, yeah. it might be like a woman under uh, a woman under the influence as a western where it's like it's cool. sort of about women not being understood more than it is about them being. Crazy. I think Hillary Swank represents that okay. just kind of like the disconnect and kind of men looking for a woman who needs them and are just like off put in this old yeah. west society by someone that's like a woman that's self-sustaining and so they kind of think she's weird and crazy but like the other three women are they're crazy women so. okay <laughs> are they are they like offensively crazy women or like are, are they like played for humor i mean not well, that, that at those least two it, necessarily it makes mean you the same feel thing. like they're crazy because their husbands are the worst so it's not like <laughs> okay like the women are bringing them down. It's like the man like beats and basically rapes his wife, and now she's lost Ooh. her mind. Yeah, they should the, just t- title this movie Three Crazy Women." Maybe more people would have went out to see it. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> they should have. They should have titled this. They movie. shouldn't have titled it "The Homesman." Yeah. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's a homesman? I don't. I don't know, and I've seen it. Yeah, it's. I don't know what they should title movies. I don't know what people like. Yeah, my movie's called Meathead Goes Hog Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, I don't know how to title movies. (laughs) But I go see that. Um, And also, I love. I mean, not that this sounds like a comedy necessarily, but it sounds at least comedic in its intent, partially. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is goofy. I love Tommy Lee Jones. Like Tommy Lee Jones, and then Tommy Lee Jones. Like I love him in like. Captain America, like the first one where he's just sort of... Yeah, he's really good in mm-hmm. the first Captain America. He's the best part of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where, yeah, he's just like, he knows... he He's one of the few old men who knows how to play his cantankery for comedy, like, really well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the homesman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what, awesome. you don't like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, like, yeah, like, you, sometimes you watch, like... Alec Baldwin on 30 Rock and occasionally he'll make like he'll deliver a line in a way that implies he didn't know what the joke was <laughs> like, like there are just some people who it's like they get put into things because they have a certain stature and it's hilarious to see yeah. that in a comedic context but that doesn't mean that they know how to be comedic and that yeah. doesn't mean that they're uh, strong comedic actors and Tommy Lee Jones feels like a kind of person like even <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just inherently hilarious to see Tommy Lee Jones in all these, like, Japanese commercials. But even in those commercials, he seems to be playing it up. I have not seen these commercials. Oh, you haven't? Oh, they're wonderful. I think I need... I'll watch they're them mostly just, like, the happiest Japanese people ever dancing around Tommy Lee Jones and him just being like, mm, all right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't... Like, if you just look up Tommy Lee Jones' Japanese commercials, because apparently he's the biggest... Not the biggest, probably, but like he's a huge star. Stick in America. with the biggest. I like that. Yeah, in no, Japan. Apparently, Tommy Lee Jones, like they offered him, they wanted him to be president of Japan, 
And what? he had to turn it down because he didn't know the line. I like the thought of like on the Men in Black poster in yeah. Japan. It's like Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith really tiny. Yeah, like it's in on the Japanese uh, Men in Black 3 uh, poster, it was like Tommy Lee Jones took up the whole poster and then like also featuring Will Smith yeah. and Josh Brolin. Yeah, Josh Brolin is actually bigger than Will Smith yeah. because he kind of – was doing a Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people were like, oh, young, young Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, and now, like, just the Tommy Lee Jones factor has made Josh Brolin a new thing in yeah. Japan. It's a wonderful, it's wow. a wonderful oh, man, ecosystem. It's, uh, TLJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, something that the, uh, it's something that the two generations can bond over. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, look, you like Tommy Lee Jones, I like Josh Brolin, maybe we can It's like the country <laughs> rock and roll thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Hey, Jim, what have you watched recently? Oh, no! Um, hmm. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> what was that? Did you drop something? Um, I have to think of something cool. I probably should have... Have you, have you watched a lot? Yeah, you know, uh, I let me see. I I guess I can talk about two movies... That essentially tackle this idea of the camera as an invasive force. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I watched these back to back in one day, and my mind was kind of warped a little bit. So it's hard to talk about them. I really want to rewatch them again, but I think they're worth discussing because one of them in particular is considered now a classic. Um,. So I mean, it's I need to read up a little bit more on their influence on modern day filmmaking. Although I've heard you know both of these titles batted around. These two titles, which we will not know <laughs> for the next three minutes. That's correct. Um, um, one of them is Peeping Tom from 1960, okay. and the other is Medium Cool from 1969. Ooh, right. and, and they and they both involve the the camera in some respect. More so Peeping Tom, with it literally being a murder weapon. Uh, the tripod has a knife in it. So, um, yeah, that's... I was kind of blown away by both movies. Um, Medium Cool is really interesting for how it um, sort of meshes up, um, you know, history, real-life, in-the-moment history with fiction. Um, so it's, But it's also really interesting to see Robert Forrester Young... Since I have no memory of him from, you know, uh, the 60s or the 70s at all, I just remember him from Jackie Brown, essentially. So in, in this, he plays a TV news cameraman who just, you know, he keeps his distance when he captures footage uh, for, you know, the news station and everything. And, you know, a lot of things are being, uh, a lot the, the streets are pretty, um, are, are paved with a lot of people protesting lately because of Vietnam. And... He sort of maintains a detachment with trying not to get too involved with what he's filming. Um, and so he's uncovering all this social unrest in Chicago during the... Well, yeah, it, the thing about that movie is it it, ca- it was actual documentary footage of the, like, Democratic, the Chicago riot. Democratic right? National Convention. Yes. And protests outside um, over in Grand Park. And there's a plot involving... The network that he works for sort of cooperating with the FBI, and uh, that whole thing is interesting, and he essentially just becomes really involved with anti-establishment. Not necessarily, he just wants to get their message out there, 
and he knows about obviously this uh, convention taking place, and he's, he's he's there covering that, but also outside he's covering what's taking place in Grant Park. And I mean, the the only thing that kind of bums me out is that um, they focus a lot less on the clashing politics midway through because they also want to tell a story about Robert Forster's family and the family dynamics and just his home life, essentially. Like, the first half, you get to see some really interesting sort of dichotomies, uh, a contrast between, like, um, you know, hippie culture and the military sort of preparing for uh, riot. And, like, they're just sort of practicing what it is to, you know... um, Take play. What he, they're, they're practicing riot gear and with riot gear and everything. They're just sort of uh, reenacting what it's like and sort of just preparing for the possibilities of protests taking place. So you sort of sure. see that, and that's really interesting. Um, and a lot of that's real. But then we sort of get the more melodramatic component of his relationship and his son, and you get so caught up in the other stuff and the sort of uh, documentary meets fiction component that uh, the filmmaker Haskell Wexler sort of, um, I know, I know you sort of planned it out cause he knew all these things were taking place, but he, you know, he, he hadn't intended to capture almost, almost a lot like with uh, gimme shelter with the um, hell's angels attacking people. He, he just didn't know how intense things were going to get. And there's actually a moment during the protests later on in the film where you hear somebody yell out, "Hey, Heskel, it's real!" <laughs> so you know, in keeping that in there, it's 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 interesting where it sort of becomes all about the moment and us witnessing it and what does it mean. But you know, it does the sort of easy rider thing too at times with the choices of music, like they have "Who Needs the Peace Corps" by Frank Zappa <laughs> at one point uh-huh. while the camera glides through a gathering of hippies and stuff. But where, you know, especially in light of protests and the Occupy movement and a lot of things going on in our country today, um, it really becomes very potent and enraging when you see cops overreact to what was intended as a peaceful demonstration. And I mean, it's not all black and white. It's certainly because, I mean, the hippies are sort of egging them on at times, calling them pigs and whores and stuff and it's it's a really fascinating final act but what marred the film a little bit too is what i'm going to dub the wages of fear out of nowhere ending that okay. didn't make a lick of sense um i won't give that away especially is it a car driving off a, a bridge <laughs> um kind of kind of yeah but it's just I'm like the metaphorical what? car drives off the metaphorical I bridge. I guess so, and I'm yeah. not even sure why the filmmaker chose to end it on that note in particular. Just, I maybe it does work on a metaphorical level, but it, did, it just made me almost like with Wages of Fear kind of giggle at how ridiculously out of nowhere it comes. And um, but overall, it's kind of an interesting film to see, despite. A couple of things that make it dated, obviously, with the music choices and just you know the hippie culture. But I, I still think it's really cool and yeah. and how it documented what was really going on at the time while creating a fictional narrative as well. Um, and it taking place in Chicago doesn't hurt too because a lot of familiar. If you find that interesting, uh, he did a he did a follow up like uh, last year or two years ago. Oh, really? Called it's like thirty minutes. It's on the Criterion Blu-ray. 
and it's called like um, Medium Cool Revisited or something like that. I don't remember. <laughs> that is exactly. What but it's, it's called. Uh, it takes place during the the NATO summit. Remember when there was supposed to be all the riots again, like uh, two oh. years ago, basically. Yeah. Okay. He filmed he filmed that. So it and also in Chicago. So it kind of reflects on that, but in a modern lens. And it's it's, it's not as good because. Obviously, it was a pretty anticlimactic as opposed to what people thought it was going to be the NATO right. riots or whatever. But uh, is it is it the same thing though, where he mixes fiction with um, it, or is no, it just more, more of a straight documentary? It's reflecting back on the changes from now until oh, from right. then. So, so, it's a, so, it's so it's a documentary. interesting, kind of because you brought up the Occupy and that kind of stuff. But it's uh, it's it's worth checking out. I wouldn't say watch it on its own, but as a follow up to Medium Cool, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and Patrick, have you seen Peeping Tom yet? No, Peeping Tom is one I'm I'm saving for oh, myself. Okay. There's like a handful of horror movies that are absolutely classic seminal horror movies that I'm just saving. Well, I want to put Powell and Pressburger like uh-huh. really high up on our list for next year. Um, I mean, I'm sure. fascinated by – I mean, this is just Powell on his own, but still, it's, it's right up there with Brief Encounters being like a new all-time favorite for me. It's – mind-blowingly good and obviously very influential and i've always said that this movie from 1990 called monsieur aya which is a french film i always said that was the best film i've ever seen about voyeurism but nope it's this one clearly yeah yeah. and you know there's there's certainly a lot to talk about with (laughs) with the meta contextual elements of you know subjectivity versus objectivity and how it like to me this is kind of like funny games without the remote control or breaking of the fourth mm-hmm. wall, where it's just sort of commenting on what does it mean for the audience? Are you complicit in watching this on a, you know, sort of twisted voyeuristic level? And what does that say about us? And but it's really, really kind of just also a, an effective slasher film for that time. It came out around the same time as Psycho, and yeah, they have Freudian elements, obviously, but it's it's there. This one is. Really potent stuff. It's something that I can't wait to watch It was too again. potent. It killed his career. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but it, and it has... Oh, God. The One thing I also really love, it, much like uh, Blowout or Barbarian Sound Studio, we get to glimpse into the life of those who sort of construct and develop film or manipulate sound, and that stuff gets me hard. Good yeah. God. I love that shit, so... Like just like the ling- like the almost fetishistic yeah. kind of lingering over of the technical details of... Yeah, and that's kind of why the, my fa- my favorite moment in To Live and Die in L.A. is, well, besides the car chase, is really just watching Willem Dafoe make that counterfeit money. Yeah, so. I, I think fetishistic depictions of, like, really procedural moments, like, another, like, a thing like that makes me think of is the crack uh, cooking scene in uh, Menace to Society, where there's mm. just, like, these fucking gorgeous, like, slow motion shots of the water pouring out of the faucet and stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, oh, yeah, here it fucking comes. Oh, I, agree. I can watch money. montages of people doing stuff all day long. Like, yeah. yeah. Like and that, but, and all, but also in that really detailed way. Like, oh, yeah. Like I, like, I mean, I love Breaking Bad, but, like, one of the things that got really old on Breaking Bad was just, like, oh, well, okay, every three episodes, here's another montage where they're cooking to yeah. a song with blue in the title. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. Like it was just like, all right, this is a very familiar thing at this point. But like when it's really detailed the way like that scene in To Live and Die in LA. Oh is. yeah, where like you know, you love when someone can claim afterwards that they actually counterfeited money. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Or like when people say they actually cooked crystal meth or like yeah. something it's like, oh, and you believe it cuz it's so detailed. Right, yeah. exactly. It's so, funny you you mentioned the lookout Haskell is real cuz the last song on 
the album that I released on your label, Jim, that's on your Bandcamp, uh, new album, is called Medium Cool. Yes, and it's a and it's a mashup. And the last the last sample I use is a sample from that very scene. Um, yeah, I recall. That's, that's definitely the, that. Like, yeah, that that fourth wall breaking scene in Medium Cool was the moment for me where I was like, all right. There's parts of this movie I'm not super into, but this movie fucking has me. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, too. There are definitely parts where I tuned out, but there's stuff about it that makes it pretty, like, uh, vital and something yeah, that people it's, need to it's see. A, it's a very, I mean, and it's 1969, so it's also, like, a really good entry into that sort of era, like, that later, like, Herzog would be doing a lot of films where, like, just the idea of documentary and and fiction sort of would end up blurring. Um, it's a really, it's a, it's a good, like sort of a counterpoint um, to that. Yeah. Uh, well, if peeping Tom ever plays Gene Siskel or music box, I am so there. I'm, Oh it's, sure. It's a phenomenal piece of work and a lot to talk about, which I think next year we should do. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, if we don't, if it, if we don't get a chance to see it before then I'll watch it for that episode. But that's definitely like this. Like it's the same thing. I I didn't watch Lawrence of Arabia for the longest time because I knew at some point the opportunity would come up to see it like uh, in seventy millimeter on the big screen. And, and when I finally did see it for the first time, it was in that context and it was great. Ah, so I if I, I could that. see the a print of uh, Peeping Tom, I'd be all over mm-hmm. it. And I also loved uh, seeing Black Mirror, which if you love Twilight Zone and Philip K. Dick, you'll love it. That's all. Yeah, people are people are going nuts over Black Mirror. That's the UK show. Yes, yeah. I haven't seen it. it uh, <laughs> everything I hear about Black Mirror is it's like it's a like it's really incredible. I mean, Jim, you've seen it, but <laughs> I mean, just like everything I hear about it is that it's like oh, and it will fuck you up every episode. Like the thing that turns every episode Twilight Zone is every episode is just like there's something that it just completely sinks you on an existential level. Pretty much. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very ex- existential and a lot of commentary about technology and also being really funny and smart. Just very smart writing on that show. And But it does have a sense of humor. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And that, it's, on, it's, it's on Netflix. Yeah, everybody should check that out. I'd be curious yeah, to hear more, more thoughts on, on that one from anybody. I'd love to do a bonus episode on anthology shows, believe me. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I wrote that thing for Chud for the longest time about Tales from the Crypt. Mm. I love anthology shows because I feel like anthology shows, even though due to the fact that they're all on television, like anthology shows ultimately end up not being great uh, yeah. expressions of director intent. They are kind of the only place where short films uh, are um, have any kind of like there's an, any kind of financial incentive to make short films. And as a fan of short films, uh, I like watching anthology shows and seeing, like, just especially Tales from the Crypt because it, all of its producers were like big filmmakers in the late '80s and early '90s. So it was just like, well, Walter Hill got to do four episodes, and because he was one of the like executive producers of the show, like he, you could just tell, like, oh, he got a bigger budget, and he kind of <laughs> just, you kind of get to see what a uh, like a thirty-minute Walter Hill film look would look like. Um, yeah, I would. I would want to cover a couple episodes of Amazing Stories. I mean, that's an inconsistent sure. show that's also dated, but it, there's some standouts from that series. Sure. So, what else uh, have you watched, Pantrank? I also saw a bunch of movies I want to talk about, but real quick, I do want to thank uh, Brian Piet. Uh, he is a, a longtime listener of the show, um, and for the longest time, he has done a thing that we have never really bitten at, which is every October he offers a cash reward to us 
for, or I think mostly, I think specifically to me, because he wants to see me get mad, to watch an entire uh, horror movie franchise. Oh, yeah? Oh, so, yeah, like, he's asked he has, both of us has, to do that, yeah. Okay, so he's in the past said, like, all right, if you watch every movie in the Howling series, I'll give you, like, five bucks for each movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never bitten just because it, it sounds like torture. Um, but uh, he did take note that Black Sea had come out recently and that I was a big fan of submarine movies. And he said, okay, if go see Black Sea. I will PayPal you money for a ticket. So I saw Black Sea and Brian paid for it. And I want to thank you very much. He also wanted me to see Hell Comes to Frogtown, which <laughs> I will see shortly, but I have not seen it yet. Oh, my so, God. That's uh, coming on a future episode. I'm excited about that. But. Yeah. <laughs> so real quick, I do want to say Black Sea, if you like submarine movies, if if like me, you think that like submarines are just really fucking awesome places to have a thriller, you should go see Black Sea. It's really cool. And if you think it's, Jude Law's hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, he's, he plays a... Jude Law is doing the thing that I guess he's doing now where it's like, I'm not technically a sexy actor anymore, so I'm going to be a weird rough-and-tumble guy. He has the fucking strongest Scottish accent. That's actually the best thing I can say about Black Sea is that it's all Russian and English and Scottish people, and they don't they don't uh, dumb down the accents for, for American listeners or for uh, potential like, American <laughs> viewers. You can kind of tell it was made for... Like British audiences, so it's not like K nineteen, the Widowmaker, with those. No, it isn't like K nineteen, the Widowmaker. K nineteen, the Widowmaker is the only submarine movie I've ever not liked um, that I've seen, but uh, uh, I haven't seen them all. But um, but yeah, so Black Sea is like a bunch of old dudes. They know a Nazi treasure at the bottom of the Black Sea, and they're going to go out and get it in a like surplus. Russian or like surplus, yeah, Russian like submarine from the Cold War, and it's fucking rusty as shit, and they're all fucking rusty as shit, and it's just fun, um, and it it kind of turns into Treasure of Sierra Madre, uh, and it's kind of like Treasure of Sierra Madre, it's kind of like beats you over the head with it, um, and is not very subtle, but it's a lot of fun. It's a, just a well made thriller. It's exciting. So, I'm definitely going to see that. It sounds yeah, fun. yeah. Um, that's a really good movie, and uh, uh, I mean, but it also it's just like it's a submarine movie, so you know what happens. Like at some point, some irreplaceable part gets broken, and they're like, "Fuck, what are we going to do?" Well, I guess yeah. we can do the like at some red point, lights start flashing. Yeah, red lights start, start flashing. At some point, uh, everyone is super quiet because the radar guy has to uh, listen in. Of course, like the great, like that's always the greatest scene. T- to me, it's like the guy just using his ears and being like, all right, five degrees, <laughs> five, five, five degrees west or five degrees right or whatever. Like, oh, that's that's always fun. But uh, it's not, you know, it's not dust boot. It's uh, it's closer to like U571, but it's fun. But the I also had a day recently where I watched just a shitload of 90s uh, indie comedies. Um, and I ended up watching like three gay themed 90s comedies in a row. I watched In and Out. I watched uh, Flirting with Disaster. Yes, um, which isn't necessarily a gay theme, but has two gay characters in it, and oh god, I or two it. queer characters, I should say. And then, in, and then I saw uh, Happy Texas, and it was weird being reminded of a time when, like, America as a culture was in a weird in between period where they're like. Gay people are human beings, 
and we've accepted that, but we don't know what that means. <laughs> like, it was a weird time where there was just, like, comedy, especially these indie comedies that aren't made by big studios, which, like, if you had a gay character in a major comedy in a studio, unless it was, like, Rupert Everett in My Best Friend's Wedding, which I think was, like, a rare standout in which the gay character wasn't just, like, there to be laughed at. Like, usually the queer characters are just like, oh, and then there's the wacky gay guy or whatever. But, like, because these are, like, more indie movies, uh, I guess In-N-Out was a major studio movie. In-N-Out's weird. In-N-Out's really weird because it's all about – it because it – okay, so it's a 90s thing where – or current television thing where gay characters are just completely sexless. Where it's like they're gay but we can't actually see them yeah. being lustful towards another man because that would just be like really off-putting for so many people. So, <sighs> so like In-N-Out is a movie in which the message is, hey, people aren't defined by their uh, – aren't defined by the groups they belong to. Just because he's gay doesn't mean he's not still a great teacher and this and that. Like he's the same person you thought he was before. He just likes men. But – because he doesn't like men in the movie, because he's not allowed to have a guy that he's into, like, he is actually solely defined by the fact that he likes Barbara Streisand or dances weird or is, like, (laughs) well-spoken. That I mean, that dance scene's wonderful. I mean, the the, the thing that saves In-N-Out is that Kevin Kline is just a physical comedic genius. Yes, he is. And he gets to play a character that is as zany, almost as zany as his character in Fish Called Wanda. And kind of in that same sort of just oh god. I mean, he's he's perfect in Fish Cold Wanda because every time he enters a scene in Fish Cold Wanda, like by the time he leaves, things are totally fucked up. Oh yeah, up. he destroys them. Yeah, yeah. He he just enters to fucking choose scenery and fuck everything up, and you make the plot ten times more complicated than it was before he entered the scene. And like he is the main character in In and Out, so he can't do that. But he's still like got that great sort of manic, very detailed oriented kind of performance. That's really great. Um, but it's also just, like, offensive. It's, like, offensive in the way you would expect a comedy about gay rights in the 90s from a major studio to be offensive. Yeah, they Whereas tried. It's, like, patronizing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I this... think uh, it was written by Paul Rudnick. He's a playwright, and I know he wrote uh, Jeffrey. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a humorist, and I think he, a lot of his stuff was very renowned for its time, and... Um, I just remember being really taken with it, but I, but I, I imagine watching it now, it yeah, it would seem a little off-putting and yeah. dated. And I, I remember yeah, John, it was John just, Cusack it was this thing. Yeah, I mean, it was just this like weird post-Ellen, pre-push for gay marriage era, where it was just like, ah, there's no gay people on TV. Like, I guess gay people aren't all child molesters. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't all have AIDS. Yeah, like, they literally aren't just, like, weird diseased monsters that yeah. are out to get us straight people. Like, they're probably just okay. Yeah. They're but, also good dancers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's, <laughs> the, it's this weird thing where there's still the legacy of gay panic, yeah. where it's like, in the 80s, you could literally just have a sight gag in a Police Academy movie, which is like, these men want to fuck these men. And that's the joke, because the idea of a man wanting to fuck another man is the grossest thing I can think of. So there's the joke. Where it's like, <laughs> where it, in a, where it's like, well, you can't do that now. That's like dehumanizing. But we still don't exactly know what a character should be. And Paul, I mean, Paul Rennick, the, the, the screen screenwriter is gay, but he's also working in the context of a Hollywood studio. Yeah. So I imagine, 
Like, there's a limit to what he can do. I'm sure at the time he was just proud to make a comedy starring a gay yeah, man. Yeah, uh, starring a gay man that is proudly, like, in support of gay rights. Yeah. Whatever mm-hmm. that means. Uh, meant to the time. But it was weird because then, then there's Happy Texas, which is just a bad movie. It's not a good movie. It was sort of the, the claim to fame that Happy Texas has is that Miramax, it's sort of like it's seen as, like, the the the, the height of Miramax's like crazy indulgence because it was bought from Sundance in '99 for like 15 million dollars. Oh, like, that's right, I remember that insane number. Where yeah. they, like at that point, like the wine scenes were just like, "Fuck it, we must rule all of indie comic, like all of independent film," because we are Miramax. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, you got granted, you guys did put out uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, but you also put out Happy Texas, and you paid 15 million dollars for a movie that made. Did five. they change? Happy Texas? I don't know. Um, that's the I did I didn't get a chance to see, but it's not a good movie. Because who would pay fifteen million dollars for Happy Texas? That's the <laughs> yeah yeah. It's it's crazy. So like Happy Texas, that's actually a movie that played on uh, Comedy Central a lot. So it's like sort of familiar with it in passing. But <laughs> like the only thing you can say for it is that Steve Zahn's in it. Oh and god. Zahn, there's like there's like a solid eight. Like okay, so the idea is these two uh, escaped guys from a chain gang. Uh, steal uh, an RV and it turns out the RV belonged to a gay couple who put on like beauty pageants for little girls and they pose as this gay couple and they put on this beauty pageant for this small town and they pretend to be gay and decent concept yeah and it's (laughs) it does nothing with it like there's only actually like eight minutes in which the beauty pageant is being worked on it's not a good movie but um but it's so and then and, and then of course like the sheriff he's gay and the sheriff is played by William H Macy and so he falls in love with the main character and they go on a date and it's a very like innocent thing and it's one of those it's like it's sort of it's sort of like well we're not going to just make it a gay panic movie mm-hmm. but we don't know what we're gonna do with it in its instead so it's just like it does nothing at all like it's not offensive but it's also yeah. Um, but like the idea is just like, oh, these guys are fine pretending to be gay, so isn't that fine? And maybe like it's I don't know. It doesn't they really realize matter. pretending to be gay isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Without yeah. doing any of the gay yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, no gay stuff at all. There's no moment where like he has to make out with William H Macy. <laughs> yeah. Um, he just has to be labeled that. Yeah, exactly. And like that is the comedy, I guess. But like the problem is like, oh. It's a movie in which Steve Zahn is interacting with little girls and teaching them how to dance. Like, fuck. Oh, that's like, gonna why be, don't you just make that's the gonna be worth seeing, like, in YouTube. Like, why clips. don't you just make the whole movie Steve Zahn's version of School of Rock? Where oh, he's crazy redneck who has to like help these little girls. And like, there's about eight good minutes. So you're like, oh, this could have been a really fun movie. I've seen with Steve uh, Zahn, Steve Zahn and around. I've but. seen I've seen Joyride like nine times because of Steve Zahn. Like, it, you got yeah. you got to deal with Paul Walker, but hey, Steve Zahn's there. I just wanted to yeah, know Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's me and Saving Silverman, which is like, oh, that movie's not great. But Steve Zahn gets to fucking Zeeve Zahn Yeah, there's up. enough Steve Zahn, Jack Black things that are, like, worth watching that when Jason Biggs gets in there, it's like, eh. Yeah, yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. I will tolerate this. Because yeah. I know at any given time, like, any moment, Steve Zahn and Jack Black are going to be back in. Yeah. Are, they're in a what, Neil Diamond cover band? Yeah, it's wonderful. Diamond's in the rough. <laughs> Someone wants to watch it Comedy just came Central. Back to speaking, me, of, speaking of movies that played on Comedy Central ad nauseum, oh, yeah, uh, there's God, a yeah. weird period of time in like early 2000s where like Comedy Central was like 
well, I guess this indie film thing is big, and they just play like independent comedies. Oh that- yeah, what's the Rolling Kansas? Do you remember that movie? It played on Comedy Central all the time. I don't time. remember Rolling Kansas, but there was uh, oh, what was that Alec Baldwin movie? There was uh, Outside Outside Providence. <laughs> yeah, they played The Edge. The Edge was on Comedy Central all the time. No. They did play State in Maine. Outside oh, Providence. Uh, Alec Baldwin. But how do you make fire for mice? Uh, it's, isn't it Outside Providence? Ah, yes. There we go. Outside Outside Providence. Yeah, that was a Fairly so, like, Brothers movie. They did movie. like a bunch of of those like kind of benign comedies that came out of. Uh, Sundance at the time where it was uh, I guess like this is kind of what was the other one there was a, the alarmist with uh, with uh, Stanley Tucci and uh, the imposters uh, I like the imposters uh, kind of I don't know if they played the imposters I think the imposters might have been a little too high minded but maybe they did um, but and, and, you know what Miramax really did lose the plot I mean I know, I know that they were also releasing they, they were affiliated with Dimension right and like all yeah, these D- really Dimension was the genre arm Dimension was run by Bob Weinstein. Oh God! There was. I remember after seeing like Soul Survivors and Teaching Mrs. Tingle, I was like, "Fuck this! I'm not going <laughs> to go see Mrs. a horror Tingle movie." Was the movie where it was like, "All right, we have the screenwriter from Scream, the biggest movie ever." Yeah. Like, let's show us what you got, Kevin Williams said. Like, you made, you did Scream, and you did The Faculty back to back. So you have the keys to the kingdom, and it's like. Teaching Mrs. Tingle. All right, we're going to need those keys back. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And we're going to change the locks just in case you made copies. <laughs> uh, but okay, so like, yeah. I mean, if you want to learn more about that era of Miramax, uh, there's an amazing book by Peter Biskin who did uh, Ra- uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls about the history of like New Hollywood called Down and Dirty Pictures. Yeah, I still need to read I think we talked about this on the uh, podcast before. It's a really good book. Yeah, I got to read that one for sure. So anyway, so... It's these two movies that were just sort of about about homosexuality, but like mostly starring straight characters that they were they didn't really qualify as queer cinema. Like they're by straight directors and stuff. I think Frank Oz did In and Out, and then there's Flirting with Disaster, which is uh, by the way, it's Flirting with Disaster is fucking amazing. Like you have said in the past, Jim, like how much you love David O. Russell, and having only seen. Silver Linings Playbook, I was like, okay, whatever. I don't know David O. Russell very much, but like, Flirty with Disaster is maybe the greatest modern screwball comedy I've ever seen. That's ever. what I, I thought when I first saw it. It's so fucking good, and it's crazy, and it's amazing, and it's like, it starts off in a place you think it's going to be like a Woody Allen kind of dramedy, or like a, a take on that sort of yeah. tone, and then it goes in it just spirals off into insanity with these super long takes and this handheld camera and just it feels almost like a play oh it's, and okay, so, so many great supporting characters oh yeah, yeah. every and yeah it just it, it's it does the wizard of oz thing where it's just like more and more people oh, yeah. get added they keep going into that house and it's like people are in the front door and then the mom's got the book of acid and it's like the yeah. whole thing and then everyone's yeah by the end of it it is just like utter hysteria and it's wonderful and, like, you could say maybe, like, the fact that Josh Brolin and uh, Richard Jenkins' characters, like, being queer, like, that is part of the, like, it's maybe offensive that they are, like, oh, maybe they're just props the way that a dwarf in a David Lynch movie is, like, <laughs> like uh, supposed to be a signifier that something weird is happening. But, like, Flirting with Disaster, they don't even say, like, there's not a scene in which it is explained to the straight characters that those two characters are queer. It's just, like... Uh, like they, like you, they get introduced as partners in in the ATF in the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms 
department or whatever, and they're introduced to partners that way, and then slowly it just dawns on you, like, oh, these two men are in a sexual relationship. Yeah. But it doesn't say anything. It's never explained to any character. And just by not mentioning it, it felt, like, just shockingly modern to me, especially being sandwiched by the other two movies. I was like, oh, that must just be the way to do it. Like, if you ever want... If you ever want something that is like, this may or may not be me trying to make a statement, just pretend like it isn't. Pretend like it's the most normal thing in the world. Um, Because those characters are totally not defined by that. They're defined by other fucking crazy things, the way every character in that (laughs) that movie is. But, like, that movie fared so much better and aged, like, a million times better than In-N-Out and Happy Texas. Uh, I mean, in part because it's just, like, a way, way better movie. But in part because it just had it. And it was just like, all right, they're they're queer and they're gay. And it's like, that's fine. That's not a thing at all. Like, I'm not even going to bring it up. Um, yeah, it's brought up gradually through their interactions, not with them outright saying we're gay, if I recall. Right. And, he, but like, and that's sort of the way the movie works in general, which is it just sort of slowly slips you into the lunacy. Yeah. Where, like, most, like, I don't know, like, a comedy, you want it to, like comedies are often paced like horror movies where it's like, all right, we have the big scare up front and then we build tension and then the scares start ratcheting up and then we have the climax where all the scares are happening. And comedies are the same way. And you kind of, when you first start watching Flirting with Disaster, it kind of is just playing everything straight. And it's only as things get more, the situation gets, just gets more and more ridiculous that you begin to realize like, oh, this is, this is, this is not the movie I thought it was. This movie is totally wacky and insane but in a really interesting, subtle way, it doesn't telegraph it with, you know, fucking big pratfalls or this or that. But by the end of it, it is just as crazy as any sort of, like, broad comedic play you've ever seen, you know? Where people, like, where, like, it's like the climax of one of the more, like, comedic, like, Neil Simon plays. Or, like, the where it's just, like, people oh. going in and out of the room and screaming and yelling and, and scenery being broken and... Everyone just bouncing off each other in unexpected ways and then callbacks to previous things and then the two identical-looking rental cars crash into each other and it's a callback to an earlier joke. Like, It's just like a really classically structured comedy. Um, yeah, I could have seen Jack Lemmon playing the Ben Stiller role. Like, just in terms of yeah, the, the, how exactly. old well, It's like it Out of Towners, basically. Out of Towners is the same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, man, uh, o. Russell's really in- inspired by uh, Ken Paul and Pressburger and old screwball, screwball comedies and things like that. And they sort of seep into was. most of his movies. Most was. of them. I mean, I don't see any of that in flirting in, uh, in Silver Linings Playbook. <sighs> so you've only seen Silver Linings Playbook? And Flirting with Disaster, yeah. You need to see Three Kings and I Heard Huckabees. You need to see Three Kings, yeah. Yeah, and I Heard Huckabees. Yeah. I have the Blu-ray for Three Kings in that binder right there. Jim sent it to me. And I just... Put it off because I'm an idiot. No, you're not. You're just well, it, taking it your time because I just thought like I had nothing to go on that made me excited because Silver Linings Playbook was just nothing to me. Like it was just okay, that's fine. It's not a terrible movie, but it's just felt like a weird Oscar kind of dramedy. Hmm. I really uh, like Silver Linings Playbook, yeah. but I, I get what you're saying that if that's the only movie you've seen, like I. Seeing the having the context of knowing that he did like Flirting with Disaster and Three Kings, and then seeing Silver Linings, it's kind of like kind of like seeing a movie by a director you really love, and you kind of like look for certain things, sure. you know, yeah. and you, you latch onto that. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Like, I feel like Silver Linings has more to offer, but if I was going in thinking it was like kind of a banal movie, and then 
it was like a, a better than average sure. shit, you know? Where it's like Match Point isn't necessarily a great movie, but it's like there is a lot of Woody Allen in there that you hadn't seen in a while. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh, I can latch on to this because this is a lot like Crimes and Misdemeanors and this and that. Yeah. Whenever there's like a hint of comedy in Match Point, it's like you go, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> yeah. It's like really – if you that was another movie, you'd be like, "Well, that didn't. That was kind of weird." That <laughs> yeah, didn't really I don't work. know why everyone's going nuts about like his return to far. That didn't seem yeah. very good to me. Um, and also, like, also, just it seems like David O. Russell with, and I haven't seen The Fighter or American Hustle, but it seems like those are two movies that are just like he has sort of been absorbed into the machine that is. Let's produce Oscar-winning movies, as opposed to like. <laughs> Like none of those movies seem nearly as idiosyncratic as they're definitely not. With disaster. But I also don't. I, I think he still puts his touch, especially yeah, I mean, especially with family kings. family dynamics and capturing what it's like for everybody yeah. to interact. I, yeah, again, I'm the one who hadn't seen any of this shit, so I shouldn't talk. But that's just like these are the things that I have thought that has led to me not seeing those other ones, which is just me being dumb or whatever. But yeah, flooding with disaster is fucking amazing. Yes, um, we're gonna do a David O. Russell episode sometime, right? I hope so. I, I'm, next year, I'm down for it. We've been putting yeah, it. David off. O. Russell and Jim Jarmusch are the two that's like we have talked endlessly about doing those two episodes, and a lot of requests do. from listeners yeah. too for both of them. So we should get on that. <laughs> I'm gonna be real disappointed when I watch a bunch of Jim Jarmusch movies and be like, I don't know. You don't like Jim Jarmusch? It's fine. It's, oh, he's my favorite director. I, I, I have, again haven't seen a ton, but the ones I have seen, I've just been like, all right. I'm not a I'm not a stranger not a super stranger than wait not fiction that's my favorite stranger okay. than paradise oh, yeah. is my favorite one yes because it's have you seen down by law no I haven't seen down by law no I need to see that too. so I'll see down by law I'll see uh, mystery train I'll see dead man but see he's another director that works really well if you watch them in progression oh yeah because he starts out with this insanely minimal style right just static wides each scene yeah and then. He keeps kind of, per, like, not perfecting, but advancing that style. Down by Law becomes more advanced. And then when you watch Dead Man, instead of thinking, oh, this is, like, almost three hours long and very slow, you're like, whoa, this is cutting a lot. Like, you know, like, you think, like, sure. if you watch it in progression, you can tell that, like, these are things he's been working on that, like, he's really taking his time on as opposed to, like, what am I... It's like it's like getting into a book halfway through. Almost. Yeah, I, th- mm. I, think, I think I may have a talent for picking the wrong movies of directors that make me end up writing them off when I absolutely shouldn't. And just, I just shouldn't because I should just trust the fact that everyone says they're big deal. They're probably a big deal. But like Jim Jarmusch, I've seen, uh, I've seen Stranger Paradise. Love that. I've seen Broken Flowers. Thought that was whatever. And then I saw Ghost Dog, which I was like, okay, that's fine. Did you see Only Lovers? This. Oh yeah. And Only Lovers, which again was like, yeah, beautiful okay. movie. I like the characters. This isn't going anywhere. I'm not a big fan of it. So I need to see the other one. I need to understand like what it is about Only Lovers that is interesting. Because I mean, I know it's there's things I found interesting about the movie, but like there's also just like things I found dumb about the movie. There are moments I think of that movie that work better than others. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's just like has a, it's like a trance. It's, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you just get zeroed in on that. Movie. Once once the plot comes though, like I was in that trance, and then like once the once the once they go back up, to Tangiers and then and they go back like, to Tangiers, like I was like, oh, he's, when he sees the woman play and he like is restored and like yeah. the creative process it lost me by that point. Oh, I love it. 
<laughs> like I can't fault you because if, sure. if you if you weren't into it at that point, it, to- it totally makes sense. But yeah, yeah, uh, Jim Jarmusch and David O. Russell, two filmmakers I don't appreciate enough. Hey, speaking of filmmakers, I don't appreciate enough. <laughs> I was just gonna say, you know who? Which filmmaker um, started off very minimalist? Oh sure. Do uh, you want to talk about a filmmaker that started off very very minimalist? Uh, yeah, I, I guess Love is Colder Than Death is actually way more, like, is, uh, is it feels similar to Stranger Than Paradise in its approach and mm. its technique and stuff. Uh, do you want to go ahead and say it all together, Jim? Let's do all three of us. Okay. <laughs> One. <laughs> One. Go ahead! Two. You me! This is the dumbest! Three. Raider, Werner, Fassbinder. I was, yeah, I was mostly interested to see if we could say it, if we could get all the syllables to line up, but completely pronounce all of them Foss, Fossbinder? Oh. What is the correct pronunciation? Don't look at me, man. Okay. Fo- I believe... I I'll believe look at the, I look at the pillow I put a hat on Fossbinder. to represent I believe Jim. it's Fossbinder. Fossbinder. You're going to get Binder. some guy from Germany, yeah, some, yeah. some fan who writes in and is like, how could you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I did put a hat See, on Kyle. that pillow so we could... <laughs> so, <laughs> four brothers? Yeah, yeah, the John Singleton movie. Oh yeah, I saw that. Uh, oh, I, that came out like Thanksgiving. Yeah, I believe it came out like Thanksgiving. I saw it in Naperville, uh, just, uh, snowy Showplace uh, 16. There you go, same place I saw it. You saw? It, I worked at Showplace 16. Oh hey, Hello. I, I come Are from, you from Naperville. Naperville. Yeah. Oh, so I, I, I live there. Yeah. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in Naperville. Well, hello. Hey. Hi. What high school? You guys uh, I went to Bennett Academy. <laughs> oh, yeah, Bennett. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. I went to Nequa Valley. Oh, Nequa Valley kid. No, that's fine. Nequa Valley's fine. <laughs> <laughs> At least you can go to. Well, you can go to Naperville North. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Naperville North. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. This is all on the podcast, by the way. Foss Binder. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this guy. He made a lot of movies. He contributed a lot to that new German cinema movement. Has there ever been a biopic about Fassbinder? Honest, I, yeah. I know he's a celebrity in Germany, but I don't. I don't know if there was like it was maybe a TV movie or something. Yeah. I don't. There has to be. I think there's even one that's supposed to come out. Really? Soon. I thought so. Somebody sent me something about a documentary of about oh, him. a documentary. I'm talking about a biopic. Like that's a crazy oh. life this guy had. Yeah, that he had, like, a Coke yeah. budget or whatever, like, in his movies. <laughs> yeah, so, like, Fassbinder is, we, we talked about this a little bit at the start of the episode, but it is just, like, this weird universe he created for himself to, like, make yeah. these movies at an insane rapid pace that are sort of, they're drawing from so many influences, like, 
I saw Marriage of Maria Braun and I, I did my review of it or whatever and someone like commented on my Facebook and they were like, oh yeah. Well, it's like if you're going to know Fassbinder, you should definitely know about this German experimental cinema and oh, also yeah. about this and this reference. Like, oh boy. It is like – it's this super singular thing oh, that can boy. be very intimidating to approach if you just know nothing about any of it. Um, it's actually kind of like a similar feeling I had when we were talking about Vin Vendors, which is just like I feel like – I don't know enough about the history of Germany, like post World War Two. I, I mean, obviously, you watched, uh, you know, uh-huh. that movie, especially as part of the the BRD trilogy, mm-hmm. which is heavily influenced. Yeah, and themes got from post World War Two Germany. Right. So exactly, and it's just and it's this sort of thing, it's like there's it's probably there's probably a whole. Co- I mean, I like that movie a lot actually, but like there's a whole context to it that I feel like I'm not getting. But yeah, he's he just I would had agree. an insane I mean, like earlier films like what twelve years like, I believe fifteen. Yeah, like fifteen years he 15 made like years forty films, including short films. Forty films, but that's not including what films he acted in. Mm. You know, plays he put on. Mm-hmm. I, basically, everyone. It's like I feel like the first takeaway is that he's made forty films yeah. in such a short time, and then the second takeaway is that he did a ton of drugs to yeah. make them. Yeah. And and it's just like so he's like the he's he's like the Robert Pollard yeah. of uh, German cinema <laughs> exactly uh, yeah and it was just he was the uh, described as like the enfant terrible for, of the new German cinema like this yeah like this just sort of brash <laughs> character and you watch his films and they very much especially pre Ali Fury to the soul like they they feel like they're really trying to push your buttons oh and, yeah. Even and, even uh-huh. the ending of Ali Fury's yeah. Assault, which I'm sure we'll get into, is like they're very confrontational kind of movies, but they're not, but they're not cold necessarily. Like some of them, I mean, again, I I couldn't finish Lo- uh, Love Is Colder Than Death, but but like, yeah, that's cold, and I didn't get into Chinese Roulette. I am not crazy about that was Chinese really roulette. detached. I feel like yeah, I feel like that movie suffers from. His notorious quick, quick kind of output and quick, like uh, what's it, Petra von Kant? It feels he wrote incomplete. In like twelve hours yeah. and filmed a, in ten days. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, Chinese roulette to me feels like like a half baked idea that he made and then just didn't care yeah. about because mm-hmm. he had probably four other films he sure. was like working on. There's something yeah, there, and they just had a lot of people staring at each other in rooms. There's something about. His movies, yeah. There's definitely something about his movies that like probably benefited from that like rat like insane yeah. pace, which is just he was able to do so many like it's. I mean, it's he worked at a much crazier pace than even Robert Altman, but you get the same kind of vibe from Robert Altman movies where it's like he didn't overthink this at all. Oh yeah, and so some of these rough edges are actually like really interesting. Oh totally. Um, Speaking of Popeye earlier, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I wanted to know like, how did you get into Fassbinder in high school? Um, the, yeah, that's be interesting. Honestly, though. the way I got into it was um, I had a I had a great TV and film class in high school that like um, we all kind of just loved movies and so like it it encouraged us all to like go out yeah. and like um, uh, I hmm. lived in a town that had a great public library and basically like I just wanted to watch every movie and I was always like trying to watch every movie and I'd look at everyone's lists and see like oh that's the same that's the same that's the same so I'd always just try to. So, like, I try to watch outrageous movies was mm-hmm. basically, like... Sure. And just, like, bold undertakings, like, you know, like, thinking, like, idiotic now looking back, but, like, being like, oh, I'm 16 and I'm going to watch all of Berlin Alexander plots. Yeah, exactly. When, so, I was, when I was 17, I checked out the uh, Criterion 
uh, like Stan Brackage collection yeah. <laughs> from from the yeah. same library. Yeah. And it's the same thing where it was just like it's like I, I want to bite off. I want to bite off more than I can chew because even if I start choking, like I'm going to get more out of oh, it. Oh yeah, and I would just I would and I was in high school, in. so like you know, like I wasn't really busy, so like <laughs> I would just mainline like I watched all of Berlin Alexander plots in two days. Oh, That's wow. a 15 hour thing. Yeah, like I yeah. I was having a hard time prepping for this just because, like, I was, like, busy with finishing up the screening. But, like, I was able to do it. And there were parts of it that went over my head. I know it. But, like, as soon as I watched Brittany and Alexander Plots, I was like, if this was a 15-hour TV miniseries, like, I got to see, like, an hour and a half movie by this guy because... I don't know. Brittany and Alexander Plots, to this day, is still some of the most powerful stuff. Like, I own it like i i went out and i bought it right away and had like no money and it was like you know like barnes how many discs is that it's a lot of discs it's this huge thing and like i thought it was the coolest thing is this amazing artwork and like tom tyker did the intro who was like in high school was like run little run yeah exactly you know so it's like it was and i i just fell in love with that and then from there i'd watched i just would watch a lot of his movies and like, uh, Criterion was a big influence because they released, like, an early Fassbender set, like, on Eclipse, mm-hmm. and I would rent that from the library. And, like, I, basically it came from, in high school, there was this place called Deep Discount, which was this uh, DVD store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they price matched anywhere online. So me and my friends, we would go there, and we would just buy, they would special order stuff and price match online. So you just find super cheap prices and have them order it in. And we would just buy all these Criterion movies I don't buy movies now, but I would I would just buy all these like, and then that was right around the same time that like Vin Vendors was releasing stuff and Jim Jarmusch and all these things that I was just I, they went over my head, but at the time it was just kind of getting into that, and that's yeah. why I fell in love with like it's almost like especially Fassbinder is like a like a is this like rock and roll attitude yeah, towards yeah, yeah. like it's very towards I can drama very it's like, very potent yeah like you could tell rich, he wears it like he directs with a leather jacket you yeah, know what yeah. i mean and like like in uh-huh. high school like it was like these are like deep films that are like just like have some attitude behind it so yeah marriage of maria brown was the first one i watched and that was definitely that where it's that opening is just Hitler's oh, picture. Oh, yeah. Explosion. <laughs> followed by, like, the weird tortured marriage. Oh. Followed by, like, weird wallpaper credits. Like, every, like, the first three minutes of The Marriage of Maria Braun, there's, like, eight different things that take you, like, catch you off guard. And then eventually it settles into, like, this really interesting melodrama about this woman sort of carving out her own space in the world in crazy ways still. But, like, but, like, that was, like, oh, Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like rock and roll Douglas Sirk and it's just like yeah. you're like yeah like yeah. it's great. Yeah, I've only seen six movies so far but as just like this creative force he could sort of take on any style and make it his own which to me is the sign of a assured filmmaker yeah. who, you know, I mean like he seems to combine especially you know after watching something like The American Soldier, French New Wave and British realism but he still works in a genre of mm-hmm. sorts, uh, whether if it's a gangster genre or, or whatever. And like, uh, but I know that you know his earlier stuff was very politically driven, and then he saw Douglas Sirk, and that sort of changed his trajectory. Like he became more of an emotionally driven filmmaker. Like he just wanted to engage people on that. It's, level. it's crazy that there was a period of time where like a specific theater had a run of Douglas Sirk films. 
and then the history of cinema changed. Yeah. Like, there's no modern filmmaker yeah. now that's like, well, I didn't know anything about Douglas Sirk, and I had no access to Douglas Sirk movies, but then the Music Box Theater played a bunch of Douglas Sirk movies, and then I went on to change, like, the course of history. Now it's yeah. just, like, so much cinema is available all the time, it's like, well, it's up to you to pick and choose, because yeah, Criterion even, has hundreds and hundreds of titles. It's crazy, like, even with the introduction of, like, Hulu and Criterion on Hulu, like, like, for me, I had to, like go to the library and like sit there for an hour reading all the back of the boxes and like pick one which was available at that time and now it's just like like yeah like you I, were like, raised I, in a in a like, comparatively like very yeah. and that was a fortunate home video yeah. like environment yeah, yeah it was basically the best <laughs> video store ever and it was all free yeah and then it's yeah and it's it's really that can't happen anymore it no. is like there, there's too many choices. It almost it, it almost like it benefits you to have to be just singularly oh, minded, and it's mm-hmm. like you really have to make a choice to be that singularly mind anymore. Like I can imagine someone like just watching, like all right, well, I just watched all the Robert Downey movies, and that's all I watched for six months, and then I wrote this script, and then I directed this movie, and it ended up being very sort of focused and very influenced by one thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's kind of hard to imagine that because it's just, what do you mean? Like, you only watch those movies? Like, you, you know, you had Netflix the entire time. You can just sit down and watch eight hours of Parks and Recreation at any moment. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you were never in a room when someone threw on something else. Like, it's hard to avoid that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't, and there's so much good quality, like, television. But it's like television's such a demand. Yeah. That and even, like, yeah, God, and even, like, Ali Fear Eats at the Soul. Like, going back to, like, the rock star sort of oh, a yeah. thing. Like, All You Fury to the Soul is a melodrama, and it's pretty measured compared to some of his films. Oh, considerably. And it's mm-hmm. and it's not... And it's very accessible, especially, like, very much compared to some of his other films. Oh, absolutely. And, it, I mean, it's a take on All That Heaven Allows, and which is also a very sort of... Like, there's things about All That Heaven Allows that are really superlative and amazing. Like, it's just the... The color in it, which I think it was a mix of Technicolor and Eastman color, like color and it's just like gorgeous. There's just so many things that Douglas Sirk does really well, but its actual story is just a very simple sort of a thing. And yeah, and that's what I appreciate about but, it. Like you can do all the heaven allows, fear, fear eats the soul, and then far from but, heaven. <laughs> but much. fear eats at the soul starts with just a quotation that it's just like it just before you even see any credits, it just says like happiness is not always fun. And then it's like, deal with that. Here are the opening credits. <laughs> like I remember seeing it, I'd be like, yeah. I was like, it was like a challenge. I was just thinking, like, oh Jesus, is that true? Like, what does that mean if that's true? I think it is true. Like I was like, it sent me into this crazy rush of feelings just with that opening mm-hmm. provocation, and I love that about that movie. That, yeah, he's a very provo- he's a provocateur yeah. of sorts. But I mean, there's something about that film. The first one of the first images I noticed that also seemed like a recurring motif is just the outsider and how people look at them. Like there is so much oh, gazing yeah. <laughs> throughout his. Yeah, movies. you just take that stairwell and, from Ali Fury's the Soul with the the cleaning women yeah. and how like their power dynamic of where they sit. Yeah. In relation to each other, and it's just it's like a, a, a on itself. And, and he does the thing like it's like to imply like people being watched where he puts the, the column in the foreground. Oh, yeah. He uses mirrors. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of times characters are framed by mirrors and he uses doorways. Like, doorways some of the most breathtaking the, shots the in that. affair with Ollie. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, they strip yeah. down and then she walks out and it's just like, 
all black and then just right there. You just can't. You're zeroed in on it. And it and it's such a long shot. Oh that yeah, doorway and it's almost framed the exact same way as the the doorway they're framed in in that long shot at the restaurant. And it's just and it may, like it just like go ahead, oh, and yeah, sit and contemplate shot. this and content like for someone who is this rock and roll kind of provocateur filmmaker, he's thoughtful. Which is like not necessarily like sometimes Lars von Trier seems like he's just trying to push your buttons and make you uncomfortable. Yeah, he's yeah, uh, not a giant. Lars I think he. Wa- I think he wants to induce the audience to think about what is happening right at that mm-hmm. moment and what it means. And I, he's he's one of those directors that creates breathing room and leaves the door open for people to think about what's taking place and doesn't just throw action upon action and dialogue and dialogue at you constantly. He allows scenes to breathe and that's something I always appreciate from any filmmaker but that but, but all yeah. he feared to soul that's like sort of the middle of his career yeah right. was that 70 is that 76 I yeah it's like 70 something I don't recall uh and but to be honest in terms of the camera movement it's one of his less showy yeah that it really is later on mm-hmm. yeah it definitely is. um the marriage of Maria Braun it was the camera movement that mostly yeah. struck me he had that he had that thing that Douglas Sirk has where just everything is about power dynamics and about when scenes are about the transferring of one person getting the upper hand over another person, he will do that oh, visually. Totally. Have, have you, did either of you guys watch uh, World on a Wire? Yes. Oh, the, boy. The camera movements of power dynamic in that are just nuts because there's, there's a lot of it uh, is the characters kind of asking people questions and then they'll be answering and then all of a sudden it'll change and no one will know what he's talking about. And then all like at that moment when you're like, wait, what, you know, like he knows and the, you're seeing it from your perspective and the camera will shift. And all of a sudden you're seeing it from a completely different angle where it's bounced off a mirror and he's tiny and he's small. Like it's, yeah. And people disappear randomly and there's just, there's a lot going oh, and on. And that, that, that score, film. clearly the score in world on a wire. It's just like this electronic trembling. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, every time something I did, my ears just know, perked tense up. happens. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, Patrick, you'd love the score for that. I mean, it, it, it's clearly speaking of Philip K. Dick and all the things that I love. That movie just has those themes of what is reality and very Matrix esque. I mean, they even use the telephone to. Well, yeah, the plot <laughs> to hop out of the world. sounded like Blade Runner, sort of a thing. I could see that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it play, it play, it, 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 it's kind of a mind trip. And, you know, it's like one of those sort of labyrinth things, but it also has, you know, sort of moments of uh, melodrama and just a, a lot of philosophy, a lot of things going on in that film that I found to be really fascinating and clearly influenced by, like, Marshall McLuhan and just, like, uh, it would, it's actually, it would pair very well with Black Mirror. Yeah. Yeah, what, sure. what, it's just what, like, what, do you, what do you mean when you say Marshall McLuhan? Um, just, I mean, Marshall McLuhan was just very critical of, uh, media and technology and, you know, television and all these things and sort of, uh, you know, like the Chomsky McLuhan, uh, idea of just thinking about what it means to, um, you know, be in this digital age and computer simulation and all these different things. And what does it all mean for us as a society? Like they were writing things that sort of became like considered way ahead of their time. Uh. Just electronic debate. Electronic <laughs> just like debate. Try- sure. Yeah, <laughs> just like debating about just what it all means to uh, be invested in technology and uh, Do you know much about, like, 
the history of German cinema in this era and like because it seemed like a lot of his stuff is were TV movies. Well, I mean, I know for hmm. Fassbinder, a lot of where he went was where there was funding. Right, like right. he would never break stride. So sure. that's why he does plays and then does TV movies and mm-hmm. miniseries because, I mean, also. They they were different in that era, like in Germany, clearly because they there was funding there. There yeah. was and there was room for like bold visions. Right. On television, yeah. Well, that's which what I'm crazy. saying. Like in the 70s, TV movie meant a certain thing in America that it clearly didn't mean in Germany. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at Berlin mm-hmm. Alexander plots, and television is still not looking that good. No. Like like you know like there's certain things, but. Well, television's no longer using film. Really. No, but I'm just saying in terms of just like going mm-hmm. like composition and like yeah. thought out in terms of, you know, like you look at shows that are praised for their cinematography and stuff now and a lot of it's like fad cinematography and not right. like, you know, like symbolism and setting up all that stuff. Like, yeah, it's it's like it, it almost feels like things get extra credit because they're on television. Oh, there's where it's totally, like, uh, Oh, Breaking Bad's so cinematic. But if you saw it as a movie, you wouldn't necessarily be struck by the cinematography of it. No, you'd probably say, like, oh, that was a well-shot movie. I don't yeah. think you'd be like... That being said, this is totally a side plot, but yeah. not really. The Nick. Have either of you guys seen The we, Nick? I have not. The Nick... I, I know to. when... Uh, I read an interview with Soderbergh where he talked about when he was figuring out how to structure that show and everything, he he watched Berlin Alexander Plots. Oh, yeah. And I know he's a big Fassbinder mm-hmm. fan because he watched a lot of it before he directed Bubble. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, The Nick is probably the best thing I saw last year. And it, I, I just think that's a great show. But that, that kind of gets across a very cinematic feel for a television show. Sure. Ran- so watch The Nick. Random tangent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plug for The Nick over. But, um... I'm curious to know what you think of in a year with Thirteen Moons. I could not finish it. I could. I started it. and It was just. It felt like an assault. I mean, literally, you see that happen even during the opening credits. And what happens during to the watch opening a transsexual? What happens what? during the opening credits? Oh, just a transsexual gets beaten okay. up uh, very intensely, and then goes on to um, his. Uh, lover's house or pro- i think it's where he lives and oh man he just gets emotionally abused and it's i mean i'm sure it leads to some revelation and something really profound and beautiful but it was too much it was just way too intense for me to watch and i it, it felt like a lars von trier kind of experience really for me but maybe it's not like that through the, the whole way through so i was just curious i have not seen it oh, okay that was one that was re- highly recommended by uh, Bill Ackerman, and I want to go- I want to revisit it another time when I can s- s- sit through the whole thing. <laughs> so because it was very challenging. I mean, his movies are challenging. Yeah, oh, definitely. I, mean, I would say the biggest challenge I, other than, like I can deal with a super languid movie like Beware the Holy Whore is another film. It starts with sort oh, yeah. of a pride comes before the fall. Oh, and yeah. it ends with a quote as well. But like it challenges you just in that nothing's happening and mm-hmm. then things happen but they happen yeah. in like it starts uh, towards the end it starts having like this elliptical editing and <laughs> the actual movement is sort of happening in between cuts mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it's sort of about all this this film crew from germany who are in spain and they're waiting for funding to happen and the director is volatile and everyone's volatile and it's mostly them waiting around this like hotel lobby and like they're listening to the jukebox and like nothing emphasizes 
actual time passing more than the fact that someone puts a song on in the jukebox and you hear the song in its entirety and then and then there's silence for 30 seconds while another character walks to the jukebox and then you hear the song another song in its entirety you know under dialogue and you know different characters having interactions and stuff and that happens like four times in one scene where you literally hear four different songs like so you just know that 20 minutes have passed you know, just because of the time that's passed and i can take provocations sort of like that in terms of pacing and stuff the hardest thing i actually the hardest sort of barrier for entry i had was and i assume this had something to do with his theater background and whatever whatever sort of strain of theater he was involved with a lot of the performances are very flat. Um, they're not very, uh, especially for someone you know who plays around with melodrama. Like they, the performances don't. They're not at all naturalistic. They are kind of flat in uh, a kind of an off-putting way. I mean, it's the same thing that honestly made it hard for me to get some Vin Vendors movies, and so maybe it's just a German thing. Um, but that to me is like the most challenging part of his movies. It's just being able to invest in characters that are not acting in a naturalistic way like that. Oh, like I, I started Ollie Fury's at the soul and I had to turn it off like 10 minutes in. And I mean, I ended up returning to it and loving it, but like the first 10 minutes, no character has any emotion sort of invested in any line they have. And it's just, it's just sort of a woman walks into an old woman, walks into a bar, sits down. And then these people see the old woman. And this woman goes, and then the person who works at the bar talks to her. And like, and no one, there's no emotions happening at all. God, that's like the American soldier for the whole running time. Oh, yeah. It's very stilted. And I found it challenging. I mean, there's certainly moments I thought that were amazing with that film in particular, especially the ending. I was like, oh, my God, that is one of the most insane endings I've ever seen. But again, like it's sort of dehumanized in a way, in the way everybody interacts with each other. And sometimes I find that interesting, like how Hartley, but other times, um, yeah, I'm kind of put off a little bit by it, but, um, something like Veronica Voss has a lot of, not not necessarily like over the top. No, Veronica Voss is a very dramatic character in that film. See, for me, that, that's my problem with Veronica Voss is that I, I, I'm not crazy about her performance. Yeah. I love the look of the film. Uh I I love, I forget the guy, but the, that whole dynamic and, but I, I don't buy her and I feel like her struggles are just lost on me in terms of, her performance, and that's where I... I think I was just reframing her as... Uh, Gloria Swanson? character's name. Is it Gloria yeah, Swanson? The one from Sun- uh, Sunset, Sunset Boulevard? Bo- oh, it's totally a Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I was just framing it in that context, and so maybe that added a layer for me to um, identify or at least um, connect with that character and her performance as but well. But think about how much worse Sunset Boulevard would be if it was from her perspective. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah, I feel like yeah, no, you need point. that disconnect. Like if it was from the guy's perspective, I just felt like for that movie, that out of that trilogy, that for me is the weakest. Oh yeah, I no yeah. I mean, hmm. I I also wonder I, I t- if I fell in love with that. Movie. I also wonder if the I look. Was, my goodness, yeah, that yeah. the overexposed. I'd never seen that look with black and white. That idea of yeah. like she has these flashbacks in Veronica Voss. 
and you see these lights oh and you see these amazing lens flares and these lens oh. flares like you know you think JJ Abrams lens flares they're are like nothing like these <laughs> they are would never be made nowadays yeah yeah these are like just overwhelming lens flares to the point where like mm-hmm. you're sort of straining to see the people through yeah. the light and even like later when you see them in the uh, uh, like her in the mental hospital like the mental hospital the way it's shot is like way overexposed oh, where yeah. like it's almost like hurting your eyes to look at the that that movie does things with black and white I had never seen before, which I thought was, which I, in it, it's like which I found value in, in its own. But like, yeah, it's a beautiful movie. I wonder if part of it is just the fact that it's in a foreign language means that I can't pick up on subtleties in line delivery, and therefore I respond hmm. more to foreign language films in which people are more emotive than foreign language films when people are like, if this was in English, would I? Would that still be the same barrier to entry? Um, I don't know, but like that's something I, that's a thought I had while I was watching these films, which is like that's a good point. There are films that play out, and I don't know how. Like there are scenes I should say that play out, and I don't know what is meant by them. Like what emotions meant by them, what emotion they're supposed to convey, which could just be like yeah, it's a it's a in Ali or in general. Well, I would say in like okay, for example, one of the most striking scenes in the Marriage of Maria. Um, Braun is where her um, she has taken an American lover mm-hmm. a, a black man um, and they start fooling around and he gets completely undressed and they're undressed and then her uh, her husband who she thought was lost as yeah. um, a prisoner of war returns home and witnesses them and he's standing in the door for the longest time and the whole scene plays out in one super long shot. And then – and I mean that movie has – that movie is weird on its own because the American it's, – it's maybe the only instance I've seen or at least the strongest instance I've seen of like really, really terrible American accents. So they're like American characters. It's like that's clearly a German actor <laughs> like who did not – like who – Again, just the pace of his movies. Like, clearly did not, like, get to work with a dialect coach. Yeah. And they'll just be like, oh, it's a German actor right there. So, like, but, but, so the, her lover, her American soldier lover has very kind of stilted performance. And that scene just plays really weird. And it ends up with her killing him. I mean, that's, again, that, that feels like one of the key, like, provocations in that movie is that you thought you were following this like sad war widow and she's actually much more vindictive and much more calculating than that. Um, but like that scene for the longest time I was watching, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about any of it. Like it was very confusing. And I feel like, cause people were so, you know, because of that sort of acting style. And I don't know if like I would feel the same cause like in retrospect, watch like thinking about that scene, I kind of understand it better. But like there, but you there are moments you have as a viewer when you're just sort of alienated by a long scene like that that just you don't know what you're supposed to feel about it at any given time, um, and I don't know if that'd be a problem if I could pick up on nuances in language or whatever, or maybe that's just like he's part of a German experimental theater group or whatever that was doing this thing and they were trying to do this whole other thing that I have no context for. I don't know, but that was the like yeah, that's the hardest challenge for me. I had a little bit of a disconnect with Lola, despite the fact that I thought, again, 
cinematography-wise, I mean that 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 movie pops with all oh, the color, yeah, ca- candy. It's like candy, like <laughs> yeah. almost just like glowing candy. Um, it's Can sort you of say candy one more like time a, in that in that voice? Candy, glowing <laughs> candy. Uh, very like Nicholas Winding Refn, and you know that's one of the few things I liked about Only God Forgives was just the look of the movie, and um, I feel like there's a lot more going on with Lola that. I I don't I'm surprised I didn't connect with as much because he he clearly lends a really strong voice to women and I think that again that was something that Douglas Sirk inspired him to do because he even said like oh with Douglas Sirk films at one point like I realized oh this filmmaker allows women to be fully dimensional and allows them to actually think mm-hmm. on screen and we never get to see that very often in movies and so he sort of based a lot of his transition over and to, you know, focusing on women. And Lola, Veronica Voss, I mean, both of those movies struck me, especially visually, but also because he ha- he lent a voice to how, you know, strong women can be as, as characters. And I also really like, in both of those movies, Armin Mueller-Stahl, who I'm, I'm fairly certain I've seen in American movies. Um, like, I think, uh, I think he was in Eastern Promises and... A movie called Music Box with uh, Jessica Lange and stuff. So I I, I had n- a nice in with seeing that guy as uh, a familiar face too. That I've always I've always liked him in movies as well. But Lola was an interesting. Have you seen Lola either of you? I, I saw it back in in high school and I I loved it. But yeah, I mean I need to see it again. It's one of those that it's like hmm, there's something there, especially politically and you know talking about Germany's oh absolutely with stuff. the post war. Yeah, for sure, for I sure. Mean, that was my number one that I, I wanted to rewatch that I didn't get to for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something... I, I mean, again, it's the it's same beautiful. problem I have with Godard, so maybe it's just like a, a hump I need to learn to get over, which is just like kind of flat, unaffected acting in foreign films really turns me off. Yeah, um, or in Hal Hartley uh, movies. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I, mean, I feel I like Godard... Wants you to really make you feel like you're watching a movie where Fassbinder, as he kind of advanced, kind of wanted to make you care about the characters first yeah. and then yeah. the movie second. Yeah. Well, there is a. There's just like a moment in Ali Furates of the Soul where it's. it's I think it's just the morning after Ali sleeps over and they've had sex and she's just making him breakfast or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you just see how happy she is. She's actually a very emotive kind of character. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you just see how happy it is. And it was just instantly, like, even though Ali, and part of this is the language barrier, and I wonder if through layers of translation and the and the idea that English is or German is supposed to be this person's second language, and then depending on how the subtitles are translating the German, like, he's kind of a hard character to access because he can't express his feelings through words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like, so, and I wonder, like, if that's uh, exacerbated through the fact that it's, I'm watching a German movie in English <laughs> uh, with English subtitles. But, like, I, like, like you, you just care so much about her that you want it to work. And then when it turns the tables and it's not, you know, that's the thing. I like F- Ollie Fierce at the Soul way more than I like All That Heaven Allows. And I like All That Heaven Allows quite a bit. But, like, Ollie Fury Eats at the Soul is to me much more complicated and interesting and you deal with like his side of it where once they're accepted in then suddenly he feels just weird and alienated yeah. because 
they accept yeah. their relationship, but he is still a second class citizen in these people's eyes. Yeah, because she starts treating like yeah. that scene when she has the other cleaning women over and she like has them like touch his muscles yeah. and you just see oh. it on his face that he's just like and then I think yeah. she says like something like objectified. Oh, that's just a that's that's foreigners, they they go through moods or you know, like uh-huh. some just super offensive blanket statement that like you almost when he goes and like you're totally on her side like you want her to be especially after the scene with her kids but like mm-hmm. like but then when she does that you just like you almost feel betrayed that she would do that yeah like that she would switch so then when he betrays her with the affair it's like kind of like you can you know it's it feels warm you understand from, it and it's from a guy that says nothing and when he does it's through two different veils of language yeah and it's like this simple like like just basically basic human language, mm-hmm. and it's it's all emotional. And even that, he seems like an uptight person, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Also, and and then, but also, he feels bad about it. Like he's not enthusiastically cheating on. There's no like enthusiasm. Oh, he almost a feels total shame. The yeah, way he he's gets very defeated. Disrobes. Yeah, it's like yeah. So like that movie, despite so I mean, her acting style isn't the sort of thing I'm talking about, but his is. Like, that movie gives you such insight into those characters um, that, like, that didn't affect me at all. Whereas some of the other films were a bit more maybe complex or complicated. And, like, that that made it harder for me to, to get into them. I really did love, though, Kai. Like, every scene in The Marriage of Maria Braun is just the, the, the compositions... Are oh yeah, ins- it's insane. Like, and it had to have been intuitive. Just at the pace he made movies, like he just had to have had this intuitive sense of where to put a camera. He couldn't have just like sat and belabored a a storyboard of all these moments. He just had to have known, like, oh, at this point, this emotion, this person feels like this, and therefore, yeah, like we were talking about before, like the pyrodynamics. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very instinctual filmmaker. I can sense that, and that's. It's also like, and he's also just like you said with uh, "Beware of a Holy Whore." He's really good at just capturing stillness and malaise, and mm-hmm. just like people hanging out and waiting. It's <laughs> waiting for Godot sort of thing. But also, it's just it's a it's kind of an interesting black comedy about you know the difficulty of movie making, and yeah, sexual frustration, and obviously got Leonard Cohen songs. I don't know. It's just like a little, a lot of elements that I, there was a moment where I was like, this feels like it's Robert Altman movie because of the way he's introducing characters. (laughs) And then I looked at the, and then afterwards I looked up the year it came out and I was like, Oh, probably not. (laughs) Like it's possible he could have seen mash like before he made that movie. But like Robert Altman wasn't really a thing in 1971. And the fact that he used songs, uh, he used songs from the album songs of Leonard Cohen, like before McCain and Mrs. Miller became out, it's like, okay, this is probably just they were on a similar wavelength doing similar yeah, things. You but, hope. Yeah, but like, I love that movie, even though there's definitely, like, there was definitely a point early on where I just had to realize, like, I, I'm i having a lot of trouble following who each of these people are. Um, yeah, I can see that. I, also, sure. that's the other thing that, like, handicapped, for me at least, in terms of identifying who characters are, is not being able to distinguish like voices apart as easily because they're in a foreign language and because mm-hmm. I'm reading subtitles like like a movie like that that just in a single scene introduces 12 people who are all who are all doing nothing yeah <laughs> like <laughs> I, 
and and it's like, all right, here are the, who these people are. It's like, what do you mean? They're all sitting in a room doing nothing. Like at a certain point, you have to just abandon. I had to abandon the idea that I would follow the plot. I think if I watched it multiple times, I'd be able to sort of pick on that stuff. But like, God, it really captures the idea of you're trying to do a project and you're just in a holding pattern. So you're just yeah sitting around like that malaise. Yeah, stuff. that malaise that. That that feeling of time passing. I mean, he does it in real time, but he does it. I don't know. Like, I can definitely. I would not recommend this movie as like a starting Fassbinder movie necessarily. But if you are the kind of person who's super interested in filmmaking and mm-hmm. like, I mean, for example, like I read that uh, Bob Bellman book, uh, Spielberg Truffaut and Me, um, that was about his experience making Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I talked about the year on the year end episode where it's just like you just understand. That in a big production, a single person spends most of their time for a film waiting and not doing a thing. Oh, yeah. And that movie is – that book is all about the, oh. how he kills time. It's like if you're the kind of person who's interested in the nitty-gritty, like procedural aspects of filmmaking, like not necessarily the creative vision, but like what does it actually feel like to be on a film set or to be in a location where a film set might potentially be <laughs> like, like, and, and then for a while there, it's like maybe this film isn't going to get made at all. Like, maybe yeah. literally nothing will happen. No, it's tra- like the it's like the jarhead of yeah, make, I, yeah, jarhead is a great example of that. Yeah, <laughs> I've done some uh, PA work on uh, bigger movies, yeah. and uh, I, I had uh, some, some a sweet time on uh, Jupiter Ascending when oh, it filmed sure. in Chicago. Where I would uh, sit from two in the morning till six in the morning, on the middle of a street corner in Chicago, while they tried to get uh, like in the loop, while they tried to get clearance to fly a helicopter like around the Willis Sears Tower. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sears Tower. And so it's like for a few weeks, it was just like sitting by a radio. Is like they'd be like, "Oh, we're gonna go," and then he'd be like, "Nope." <laughs> and then, like, yep. four hours would go by. They're like, all right, we're going to launch now. Otherwise, it's uh, going to be a uh, sunrise. So then they, they go do one thing and they go, we didn't get it. Let's do it tomorrow. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, <laughs> what? like this is this is my life right now. Yeah. And then you'd sit there and you wait in line and you return your walkie talkies. This and... is the most absurd way humans have come up with yet to make art. And it's like, <laughs> like... it's like that was for like one shot in a scene of a movie that like second bombed, unit yeah, shot, like yeah. Second that people didn't like to begin with. Yeah, it's like it's like oh yeah, like oh the highlight was when I uh, bumped into Channing Tatum standing, mm-hmm. like you know, it's like, <laughs> and also answer like sometimes I've I've definitely been guilty of this. Like you'll you'll watch a bad movie or whatever, and then you'll see the credits, and there's just like hundreds and hundreds of people. Oh yeah, and you, and you'll see and you'll think like how did. Not one of them think, oh, this like here are all the things that are the problems. We should fix it. And the answer is they all fought that, and they all like the inertia oh, was just everyone way too on strong. a set thinks yeah. they could do it better. Yeah, and everyone uh-huh. on a set thinks for the like on a union set. It's like like I have, I have a coworker, and it's like he's like he's like talks about like his experience of uh, working on Baby's Day Out. Sure, and yes. like and he's like you know he's like yeah he, he like went to a strip club with Vern Troyer. <laughs> And it's like that because Vern Troyer was like a stunt man in Baby's Day Out as yeah. the baby. Oh, and it's like that's boy. that's the takeaway. Like yeah. you know, like it's like yeah, he he knew he was working on Baby's Day Out, but hey, he went to a strip club with Vern Troyer. Yeah, and and and, and beware the Holy Horror just like tortures that out <laughs> so much that it's, it's like it is just solely about like the absurdity. Like who thought this was like 
how did this come like I understand like at a certain point the idea that like 13 13 photographs like street like shot uh 13 photographs displayed in rapid succession over the course of a second and you do that a bunch and it's like oh my god it's crazy it's like things up on that uh yeah. on that big curtain are, are moving and then eventually like in a backwards ass way like an art evolved from it and then now you have the most absurd way ever for expression and it's like now like nowadays you can make a movie for six thousand dollars but it's still probably you're calling falconers and you're like what do you mean you don't want to be on camera oh there's a lot of like uh inertia yeah i I, I imagine guys with stories of uh no, I mean that's what so I'm there. interested no. in, though. Is the procedural? Trust me, you're not. You're sure. interested in it because you're not doing. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. In, in retrospect, I like getting this story that yeah. took 18 hours to complete in real time, but I can get it in six minutes. Like, <laughs> you would love the wire if it was took place like on a film set. <clears throat> yeah, that'd be kind yeah. of interesting. Well, I mean, that yeah, is. No, I, I, that I, makes sense. I'm to not me. saying that's what be beware the holy whore is not the wire if it took place on a film. No, Can you imagine working on the set of the show that's filming on a set like. Yeah, waiting to film a scene of a scene where you're waiting to film a scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went. Oh I once had an idea. I didn't. I didn't have an, anywhere to put this idea, but I had an idea of a movie opening that had like four fake outs, and then and then like the scene ended in a wide shot where you saw like six sets spiral around each other because the camera had to keep like yeah, panning keep to the quote unquote crewmen and stuff. <laughs> Oh crap! You know, I just I, I forgot to mention this, but I saw this Robert Mitchum movie called The Locket, mm-hmm. and it's like fucking a uh, flashback within a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. It's like four flashback, like it goes literally into four different characters' heads. Yeah, and it's the it's, Sarah, just like it's the, the Saragossa manuscript of Robert yeah, Mitchum movies. Yeah, exactly. Or the Cloud Atlas, like, I suppose. What is what is going on? I mean, for that time, it was just like, it's totally unconventional and kind of unexpected for that era of uh, movie making. Interesting. Very interesting stuff. So that's anyway. A, that's a, yeah. That's so why anyway. I'm super into Beware the Holy Whore, even if my experience of watching it was like, oh, they're really, they're really doing it. <laughs> like, yeah. I was, I was in awe, but it's not the kind of audacious thing that fills you with energy. It's like, oh, this is audacious. Like, this is totally fucking, like, someone committing to a vision. This is totally someone who didn't have three producers mm-hmm. to yeah. talk to, like, talk them out of this. <laughs> but at the same time, it's, like, it's, it's, I'm glad, it's an experience I'm glad I went through, but multiple times while I was watching, I'm like, you know, I could turn this off right now. <laughs> um, and uh, I think a uh, theme that sort of pops up, too, in a lot of his movies is uh, displacement. Because yeah. I think a lot of his characters experience that, and... um. I, I don't know. I think with Veronica Voss too, it's you know not necessarily as like uh, you know this meta commentary on films and filmmaking. What it does, it's more just like this idea of a fading actress sinking deeper into herself and then sort of accepting the inevitability of her own annihilation due to her uh, codependence and addiction and that kind of stuff really gets to me when people just sort of accept this, a downward spiral of sorts and just roll with it. Yeah. Um, and obviously the cinematography that is just mind-blowingly good. Yeah. Um, did you see any other movies you want to talk about that haven't been um, touched on yet? Because I, I, I have to admit, this was a poor, like, poor, uh, it happened to be a poor time to try to, like, watch this filmmaker in my life. Because I was just, like, emotionally not prepared for most of these <laughs> yeah. films. So there were just multiple I couldn't, times I couldn't binge. Past- 
over the There's past no like, way I yeah, can you binge. can't you can't sit down and watch three Fassbender movies in a row. No. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, you you watched Alexander Berlin Platz in two days, but but no, I mean, I don't think I could do that now. But yeah. I know, actually, I know I couldn't do it now because I've been planning on rewatching it for like seven years, so I haven't. But yeah. uh, no, I, the bitter tears of uh, Petra von Kant. Mm-hmm. I need um, to see that. That movie, I I won't talk too much about it just because, I mean. Honestly, there's not much to say. Like in terms of, it's it's just a. I find it fascinating. I find the. It all takes place in one room. It's like um, it's over two hours, but it's just the way it kind hmm. of evolves. And the main character, she's she's simultaneously so unlikable, kind of like almost all uh, Fassbinder. But like, but there's this just aspect to that just draws you in, and the way that she kind of you can tell she deals with her assistant and her girlfriend, and it's just. It just kind of all culminates, of course, in classic Fassbinder's fashion, some shocking conclusion. Yeah. But the way they shoot this room, just in terms of the cinematography of it. Because it all takes staging, place in, like, a room, right? Yeah, one room. And I, th- I believe they shot it in 10 days. And the staging and everything, like you were talking earlier about it being instinctual and everything. It's just it's just very impressive. And I re- I'd recommend that one to a lot of people. It's just as... It that one would almost be a good one to kind of split the middle of like if you haven't seen any of his films, I'd say I'd recommend either that one or um Ali, Furious of Soul mm-hmm. as like yeah. the two kind of entry points. Also, um Yeah, I I would say um I saw uh what's it called? Fox and Friends. Yeah. And um That was also recommended. I had to never us. seen that one before and I was very intrigued by the concept of someone winning the lottery and like trying to rise up in high society now that he has money. Mm-hmm. And then it, hmm. and there's just this inevitable kind of, you know, as soon as, before he even wins the money, you just know he's going to win this money and it's going to go so horribly wrong and it's, he's going to fall on his face. And it's just, you're watching the whole time waiting for that to happen. And, and, that works sometimes in a movie. Like, you feel that inevitable kind of thing. And then when it's, like, it ends horribly, there's almost, like, a weird catharsis. Yeah. And, like, the fact that, like, well, you knew it was going to burn, like, crash and burn. At least it happened. Yeah. But hmm. for me, the film, I don't know. I, I'm not actually that crazy about Fassbinder as an actor. No. And, like, um, I feel like sometimes actors, when they direct and then star in the movie, they, like, nail it. And then sometimes, like I can just like feel like they know where the material, what the material is so well that they know where it's going. And I feel like that, especially in this film, like he's he's not in the moment. Yeah, like he's like he's always leading you towards the next scene. I feel like in the performance, like he's like always like going towards that end to such a degree that like, like he's he's, like out of it. Like he's trying to emotionally bring you to the end. Yeah, like he knows he has to carry it forward, so he you can literally see him acting that like crazy. and I'm not that crazy about it. That being said, uh, some good uh, full frontal uh, Fassbinder nudity. Good. And oh boy! I, I, I did read up on it, and apparently he like was like his main prep for the role was just like getting in shape because he didn't want to be fat and naked. Sure. So <laughs> so, so there's an interesting uh, personal anecdote that yeah. he uh, vain nice full his frontal. vanity. Yeah. So uh, another another queer director as well. So the equal opportunity sort of full frontal nudity is uh, very appreciated. I don't know if he was gay or way more fluid than that, but um, 
it certainly he was. has. There's certainly an easy sexuality to it. Yeah, wasn't he dating the uh, lead actor of Ali Fury's The Soul? I think. Oh, was he? Yeah, Good I think so. Yeah, yeah. very handsome man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those muscles. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, let's rehearse scene. that. Let's. I want to feel your muscles. <laughs> no, yeah, the, what does she say when she sees him in the shower? Like you are a impressive. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> impressive man. That I love that shower scene though because it is you don't see them have sex. You don't. No, there's no sexual acts between them. Besides the dance, dancing is like the only intimate. Right. Yeah. They they seem to be more emotionally compelled to each other. Oh yeah. Than sexually, but I do like that it isn't like, well, she's old, so this is not a. Oh yeah. She thing. also she, like mm-hmm. recognizes him as like a sexy man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I I like that it is able to both have an old woman who is lustful and not have a scene in which it's like, oh, here's a here's a white old woman and a and an attractive. Uh, Arab man and they're having sex and you have to deal with it. Yeah. Whoa, take that 1974. Like, it's like that kind of... That yeah, would be like the really easiest goes thing, into yeah, that. Yeah, the easiest nice. way you could provoke someone with with a, with a that material would be that. But he doesn't necessarily just take the easiest way. Um, which is cool. I like that. Yeah, we're going to have to come back to Fassbinder in the future, I think, because there's a lot more to yeah. see. I, Fassbinder, I, I have definitely seen enough that um, my interest is peaked. Like it's supposed to yeah. be hard. Where every time I dip my toe in, I'm just like, oh no, too cold. Too cold. Yeah. <laughs> We're like Fassbinder. There's definitely like okay, I could dive into this eventually. Um, and I, I think, think it's so too. Probably just going to be a thing I chip away at at the most rest of my life. Just like in the back of my mind, like oh yeah, I want to see more Fassbinder because I think he's such a fascinating figure in film, and I think his movies are the perfect combination of sort of really empathetic humanism and really high, not necessarily high energy in that, you know, they're fast paced or Mm -hmm. that the performances are big, but there's just an energetic rush you get from watching the movies because he's not afraid. You can feel the passion of his voice behind melodrama, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fascinating like combination Four. Absolutely, melodramas can can easily become a very staid yeah. kind of uh, soap opera. Uh, yeah, it can it can feel too nice, and it can feel too it can just feel kind of reheated. Um, you know, if you don't have like a weird sort of approach, to it. like you, like you see, well, that's in, why Todd Haynes works well. Yeah, mm-hmm. like Todd Haynes, or like you see in Separation, mm-hmm. uh, or a Separation, a right? Separation, a Separation, like is the same way where it's it's melodrama, but it's it, it just it has a really high energy to it, and you feel for every character simultaneously. Or like you know Daisy yeah. Kenyon, which we talked about in the Auto Preminger episode, where it approaches melodrama at really odd angles because all the characters kind of know they're in a melodramatic setting and they're mm-hmm. trying to prevent it, but they can't because they're humans with emotions that they can't control. <laughs> and like like people who approach melodrama from that angle, I find totally captivating. But at the same time, it was just like. Oh man, I'm too depressed. I need to eat some junk food right now. I'm gonna watch another '90s horror movie. Or, yeah, <laughs> or like I can't watch. Like I'm gonna watch Scream. I'm not gonna watch uh, fucking uh, the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. You know, like, but I will eventually watch the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. So, absolutely, uh, I think yep. he he makes really fascinating mood pieces and seems to 
want to document a lot about suppressed emotions and stuff, and I'm I'm all about that. It's just hard to sit through a bunch of his movies all at once. Yeah, this is. I'm I'm so glad we did this episode though. Yeah, me because too. Because I've just it's it's an it's it's the thing I keep saying on this podcast all the time. But you have a feeling when you're a cinephile for several years that you just sort of understand what the broad like what the limits of the broad history mm-hmm. of cinema is and then you see someone like Fassbinder who does something you've never seen before yeah um and has a whole world of film that he's created over a short period of time that like explores all these different angles to that thing he does and you're like oh my god like i just love being i love being reminded that i'm an idiot who doesn't actually know anything about <laughs> like that doesn't that there's actually the the limits of cinema as an art form is just like way more expansive than Absolutely. I have any mm-hmm. concept of. And I love when I get introduced to a filmmaker like Fassbinder who reminds me of that. Yeah, especially with something like The American Soldier where it felt like kind of a slog, but then this ending comes along and I'm just like, oh my god, I've never seen anything like now, the that way before that, in so, my life. So a listener uh, recommended that movie to us on Twitter and and said it and actually recommended to us, said it was like The American Friend, the Vin Vendors movie. I don't Is that see, true? I don't really see I don't really see that I don't, connection. I don't see that as well. No. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, listener. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's worth worth it just for that ending. It's something else. <laughs> sure. But um, um yeah, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. As, but we got a lot more to as get we to. get into our. Yeah, yeah. As we get into our top three uh, Fassbinder movies, do you count Alexander Berlin Platts? Berlin or, Alexander like, Platts. Do you? I would count that just because that's probably my favorite thing he's done. Yeah, but like, I don't know. Would you count Mildred Pierce as a Todd Haynes movie? I, I mean, I mean, these that's, are, these that's are kind the of like stupid divisions of a medium. That no, is I get what you're saying. It's, it's like well, we talked about earlier the Nick. Yeah, it's like Steven Soderbergh. He directed every episode of the Nick. So is, is so the like Nick, by that logic, where's the Nick? Did he retire from filmmaking? Yeah, exactly. No, like, he's well, never he going to. No, but like you know, it's like he kind of did make a movie. It's ten hours long. It's called the Nick. Like yeah, it's. You know? it's I mean, I understand it's arbitrary divisions, but uh, you would just because it's your favorite thing. Foster yeah, like just done. because. I don't know. What is see, the... What is... Can you give me the Okay, so it's a guy that. gets out of prison, Franz Bieberkopf. Um, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Get over it. <laughs> and uh, he gets out of prison, and he's basically trying to be reformed and struggling in every way with not being. And it's just his slow descent into crime and everything else, falling back into his old ways over the course of this 15 okay. hours. And it's in so many ways. It's so like it's. That's why I count it because it's. It doesn't feel like you know he took on this like like a random thing. It, it feels so much like a true Fassbinder vision. It's based on a famous novel, but it it really does have that feel of a film, and it has the look. And it has everything that you would expect. It just it just so happens to be fifteen hours long. Yeah. Well, maybe Patrick will have a little party and uh, watch that movie. Drink some. Red I, I, that is. That's, I would come to that. I, would. I have. I have had uh, with uh, our mutual friend Marissa. Hi, Marissa, if you're listening. Uh, Marissa, I she sat, is. I sat down and I watched all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets in a row. That's probably about 15 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We can I do think, it. Honestly, <laughs> someday. Struggling, like growing up and like having to deal with real shit yeah. and everything, I feel like 
watching that all the way through now yeah. would put me in like a very dark, like mm-hmm. nihilistic place that I would not I would not recommend a marathon. It's it's funny that like watching films of just People haunting your dreams and killing them. Yeah, yeah, that, like, that's way more fun. It's like, oh, go go ahead with that uh-huh. one. Yeah. yeah. Like if you watch all the Police Academy movies. I've seen all the well, Police Academy movies. I would movies. not recommend that either. <laughs> I've <laughs> seen all the Night Renown Streets. I'm totally ready for Alexander Berleplatz. Or Berlin Alexander. Um, all right, we should give our top three movies. Jim? Ali, Fear Eats the Soul is number one. Number two mm-hmm. is Veronica Voss. And number three is World on a Wire. I'm counting it. I don't care if it's a TV movie. Sure. Because <laughs> it's got all the things... I, I mean, like. that's only a two-part miniseries, so that... Yeah. That, if, if Berlin Alexander plays cuts, that counts. Yeah. Uh, Sean? Uh, three, World on a Wire. Two, um, Ali, Furious of Soul. And number one would be Berlin Alexander Plutz. All right. Nice. My uh, number three would be uh, um, Fear the Holy Horror. My number two would be uh, Marriage of Maria Brown, and my number one would be Ali Fear Eats at the Soul. Why did I start at number one? That was weird. I don't yeah. normally do that. Hmm. Fool. You fool. The people turned off. I gotta say, I do enjoy your top ten list where you guys, the one Yell couple years ago, where you guys, where you guys drink, or the year ends, where like, I, I love it, because by the end you get to one or wherever, it, it was just, you guys were just like, <laughs> laughing, having a blast, and just basically give each other a hard time. For yeah, number yeah. One. <laughs> well, that, well, that's a, that's the thing. You normally bury the lead. I'm so surprised you started with number one, Jim. I know it's weird. You like to give like a a, a, a concession speech, uh, sort of, when you are talking about a movie you like. I gotta say too, like the majority of the emails we've gotten have given us a lot of praise for that best of episode and. Um, apparently just like people love us to get drunk and yell at each other and well, that's the, fine. The, uh, even the, what's it called? The Temple of Doom? Yeah. That <laughs> one was enjoyable as well where it just became like, it just became, fucking racist. I felt, I felt weird not drinking while yeah. listening to that. I was just yeah, like, like, like you're running, you're at a party. I was cleaning my, my house and listening <laughs> to that. And I was just like, like had headphones in and it was just like, you guys just like. So you weren't <laughs> watching the movie along with it? No. But you still listen to it? Yeah. Cool. Uh, Mostly because it. uh, it's on iTunes, so then it just kind of plays the next yeah. one. So Sweet. That's so then cool. it started, and I was like... Mm-hmm. It's, there, but there are also people who are just like, uh, you, you are a buffoon, please stop drinking. <laughs> so you got to find that <laughs> Do sweet spot. Do people think you have like a drinking problem or well, something? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> there are people who are sober who are just like, I don't necessarily appreciate uh, you drinking. Hey, Jim, are you still there? Yeah, I am, and I'm excited for episode 100 to see how drunk we get. Yeah. Oh, is that coming up? Episode 100 is coming up soon. Yeah. I think we Fall. are going to do our hundred favorite films. Oh, like uh, <laughs> film junk. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's. I mean, unlike film junk, we there's only the two of us. But so it's episode 200. Didn't they do that for 400? It was like the four 100s. Well, they did it for episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. They did it for episode I didn't, 100. I didn't that episode. Though. They did it for. Yeah, episode 100, and then they did it again for episode 400. Yeah. So we'll do it that's for gonna, That's going to be weird. I still want one episode. I, there's one episode I want to do, and it's in the back of my, my heart of hearts. Like, like, when I think about, like, okay, how do podcasting, how do I do something new? How do I do something different? I have the strongest desire in the universe 
to eat mushrooms or drop acid like 45 hmm. minutes before we start recording and then do a, like a two, two and a half hour podcast and see how I am by the end of it. Yeah. I need the right director. I, it needs to be a director that I, if I just wander off and take off my headphones, you will be able to continue on without me. Terry Gilliam. Like maybe if we did like a Ken Russell episode, oh. if I could take hallucinogens, that would, that would make me so happy because I've never heard a podcast where someone was on. I don't know. I think it should be someone just to- like John Turtletop. Yeah. <laughs> the John Turtletop. You're on shrooms. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's actually the better way to go. Or Gore Verbinski. Yeah. Chris Columbus and just be like, you know what that fucking furnace in Home Alone really was? (laughs) That's white flight. (laughs) Actually, just knowing how I actually am on hallucinogens, it would end up with me finding the the board on the floor that makes a creaking sound and trying to turn it into an instrument. That would actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come up with some insane theory. I would just wander off and try to make noises with my mouth and hands. I would love that. That would yeah, be a great, be great episode. So we'll put that <laughs> we'll put that on the docket of potential episodes. Um, if it means Patrick, that you'll like my puns more, then you can do all the drugs you want. I, th- I don't think you made a pun this whole episode. Yeah, it's true. I th- oh no, you know, I feel uh, bad. I feel like I ruined your uh, your pun streak. You made a pun. Bef- you made puns before the episode, and I think uh, Jim Panzi was the only. <laughs> Jim Panzi. Oh, okay, there we go. Whew, there had to have been something. <laughs> anyway, right. you know what I'm excited about. What are you excited about? Larry Cohen. That's right. That's our next episode. We'd switch things around so we wouldn't be following uh, Fossbinder with Bunel. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Your was listenership's just... like, they got pretentious. Yeah, that, like, that was just poor planning. But uh, <laughs> we're going to follow it with Larry Cohen, who I'm excited about because uh, trashy movies. Oh, uh, could use some Larry of those. Cohen brings flavor to them, unlike yeah. like, like few others. Um, I'll probably watch a f- few of his script movies too sure well fun. you should see at least maniac cop 2 yes i have and i love it okay you have seen that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God, that's ugh. if you if you have <laughs> a taste for no i'm i'm just like i'm ball i'm i'm annoyed that that isn't a big deal because i'm that, looking at the poster i do have a big right poster now. signed by william lustig himself uh we <laughs> we 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 decorated with the hot fuzz poster and the maniac cop 2 poster because they're both films that uh, undermine the authority of police, which we appreciate. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, Maniac Cop 2 is one of the best. I think it's the only action horror film in which the action is actually really well shot. Uh-huh. Um, most most action horror films tend to be just kind of, like, super energetic horror films. Like, they just kind of be, like, from dusk till dawn or something. Whereas Maniac Cop 2 has just, like, some incredible car stunts that are just, oh, this is amazing. And... There's a there's a stunt where a guy a stuntman's on fire for like three minutes of screen time, <laughs> like it's it's insane. But uh, you, need, anyway. you need to see the uh, hidden sometime too, Patrick. Oh sure, sure. Yeah. I need to see that. Yeah, um, that's got some good action and it's a good horror sci fi movie. Um, Sean, thank yeah. you so much for being on. Oh well, thank you for having me, guys. Um, mm-hmm. Punctuation films. Meathead goes hog wild. If you are in Chicago, uh, you can search. What can you search? I don't know. I don't think it's even up. You know what you can do if you're in <laughs> Chicago? HTTP TI dot TO. Oh, yeah. So you can buy tickets. Front slash the- Meathead, front slash Hogwild. You can buy pre sale tickets to go see the premiere um, of Meathead Goes Hogwild in an art gallery. Um, 
You'll get a free drink ticket with that. I'm going to be there if I'm not working. I can't. It's too late for me to request it off, but if I'm not working, awesome. I'm absolutely going to be there. What day is that? That is the 26th. It's hmm. a Thursday. You should come, Jim. I... So ti.to. It'd be nice to meet you as not just a voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me, Jim's, Jim's car fucked up, so he yeah. couldn't get here. Yeah. I will definitely try. I think my mom might be having eye surgery around that time, so we'll, oh, well then, see. No worries. No worries. <laughs> well, if she has it before, maybe like the first thing she sees when she takes her bandages off could be the head goes hog wild. That'd be that'd we'd, be. We'd put it on the poster. Yeah. No, she would prefer it to be boogie nights. That's sure. okay. Well, yeah. Um, Do you have anything else to plug? Uh, no, nothing really. Just uh, hanging out. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Are you on Twitter and all that? Um, yeah, you can follow me at Punctuation Films on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not good at the plugging and the. That's fine. That's okay. Neither are we. Patrick, where can we find you? Uh, at Twitter at at Patrick Rapole <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm still doing my uh, music blog. That's uh, Patrick's new album. Um Still posting demos, trying to finish some song. Eventually, it's weird. It's weird. We we do a bonus. Me and Jim recorded a bonus episode that uh, hopefully I'll finish editing in the next couple days, and I'll put up shortly after this episode comes out. Um, um, yeah, it'll probably be out around Monday. Yeah. Well, no, that yeah. doesn't matter because who knows when you're listening to this? Uh, yeah. Don't. <laughs> But at any, at any rate, uh, we did an episode talking about writing music and yeah. stuff. And so I, if you want to hear more about me te- writing music, uh, Patrick's new album, .wordpress.com. Uh, I already mentioned Letterboxd and Twitter. All right. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, we've gotten a lot of emails recently. Thank you so much, everybody who emails us. I know. We love hearing all your emails. And we gotten a couple of really great Twitter or Twitter uh, iTunes reviews fairly recently, yeah. too, that were really sweet. So continue to give us some star ratings over there. That'd yep. be great. Um, visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. And our email address is directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm at Instant Jim, both at Twitter and Letterboxd. Um, mm-hmm. And feel free to check out my record at gardenonatrampoline.bandcamp.com. We will right. see you in two weeks for Larry Cohen. And until then, I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. Goodbye. I Google exotic animals and orangutan and chimpanzee comes up. So I, I call this guy and I go, I go, Hey, um, we want to rent a chimpanzee. Uh, we were going to do a scene with, a, an eagle, but basically we're kind of like looking to do a chimp, uh, just kind of like you training a chimp. And then like it, like, like he's kind of frustrated and he's like, um, like, what's he going to be doing? He's got to be doing something. And I was like, Oh, I didn't think about it before. It's just going to be like a, falcon flying away coming back he's like what's he gonna be doing so i like talked to my buddies who i wrote it with and directed the movie with and they're like i don't know what's like a weird thing and a chimp could be doing we're like uh i don't know pouring an all-known palmer so <laughs> so we we got this chimp to he was like we're like okay can he pick up one picture and mm-hmm. another picture and 
and pour it pour iced tea lemonade into it and pour it and make it Arnold Palmer. Can your can your chimp do? And the guy was like, guy was like, oh, totally. He's like, my chimp can do anything. So then, so then he calls back and he's like, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, my chimp's up for it. But you, he's like, two two things. First thing. There can't be anyone within five feet of this chimp because he could rip their face off. Sure. Besides him, <laughs> no one could get within five feet. And he's like, so you're going to get little kids. He's like, where are we doing this? We're going to do it in the park. He's like, you're going to get a little kid, try to run up and get a picture of the chimp. Not going to happen. Like yeah. super strict. He's like, yeah, yeah. and then the same strict thing, he's like, second thing you got to know. I got an Elvis show after this. I'm in an Elvis cover band. I've got to wear my Elvis hair because it takes a couple hours to put on. And, I, and it, I'm going straight from this. To my Elvis cover band thing. So in the movie, <laughs> there is a scene. I thought you had test groups. You're like, so you got the, so they're like, I, so no I like, one brings yeah. it up. That's the crazy part. We screen it for people and we go, what'd you think of the movie? And then they go, and they were like, what about when the chimp and they're like, well, that was kind of weird. That was kind of weird. It's like the most, there's a scene where a man, with Elvis, Elvis hair, has Elvis hair, that makes, it makes a chimp pour an Arnold Palmer. And no one brings it up. And it is the most infuriating. Because you have this story that you want to be able to tell someone. Yeah. So. Oh. 